Welcome to the Board of Trustees meeting. Um, Rana, can we get a roll call? Trustee Avalada. Here. Trustee Peterson. Here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. He, he is there. I see him. There he is. And uh, Trustee Shequin. Here. Trustee DeVries. Present. Trustee Jensen. Here. We do have a quorum. Thank you. We have agenda item and Ronnie Settles Max. I don't have the speaker's name. I'm sorry, it's Maxine Butler. Maxine Butler. Good evening. Evening. Go right okay, ahead. Three minutes. Pardon me. Go right ahead. You have three minutes for your public comment. Yes, uh, my name is Maxine Butler. Uh, metastatic breast and metastatic uh, pancreatic cancer patient. Uh, during my surgery last July, I went into cardiac arrest with no, no pulse for about a minute. I woke up uh, to see a massive uh, blister on my dominant left arm. Uh, didn't get a clear explanation as to what had happened. Apparently, it was an injection of the uh, chemical epinephrine that caused a third degree burn on my left arm. I uh, received extensive wound care nursing at Highland and went to a nursing home uh, for intravenous feeding and uh, right then had to have home health care. I reached out to risk management to see what Highland's position was in remedying this very traumatic situation. And I was told that I would have to file a, 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 a claim, and I said, I'm just trying to get through this, this cancer that took my mom's life and two great uncles. I mean, this is traumatic. This is a burden that never should be shifted on my shoulders. And so uh, I, the door was shut. The claim was denied with no reason, and I have permanent permanent disfigured scar that drew looks is as recent as today i'm a classical singer i sing with my my church's orchestra as well as i used to sing with the oakland symphony chorus i am uh, traumatized i have to make sure it's covered up and the troubling experience is why i've had to um get a, try to get a response and why i had to shoulder this burden um and uh, I never heard back in my follow-ups, I asked the providers, what happened? What, what's Highland going to do about this? And that is my troubling experience. Up to then, I've had excellent care. I have had excellent care. But this July of last year has had a lasting effect on me. And I, I thank you for giving me this, this time uh, to speak, and I look forward to hearing uh, your re remedies. Thank you. 
Thank you for sharing that. I'll see what we're able to do to follow up and appreciate your sharing. All right, we are going to now go into closed session. I, uh, I'm having trouble signing up for public comment. Okay. Rana, can we add folks for public comment? It's at your discussion. Um, I would. I need the name of the person though. Yeah, John Pearson. Go right ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is John Pearson. I'm an ER nurse here at Highland Hospital, um, and I also live and vote in Oakland. Um, and I'm here today speaking on behalf of my 3,000 plus coworkers in SEIU Local 10 to 1. And I want to let the AHS Board of Trustees know tonight um, that we have handed a petition uh, of about two-thirds of our members uh, of no confidence in this board and the AHS administration to the county supervisors earlier this week. And we are today finishing up a strike vote that looks like it's headed toward um, a large number of our members uh, voting to give strike notice to AHS. Um, we have lost our trust in this administration. Uh, we appreciate the gesture that was made yesterday. It's going to take a lot more than that. It's gonna take some actual meaningful agreement um, and uh, a settled contract uh, in order to start building back the trust that should be between union members and the majority of your labor force and AHS. We saw in your statement that you're concerned about what will happen if we don't go on strike with patients, we're extremely concerned about what will happen if we do not go on strike. We're worried about what's happening right now, the matters that we've brought to you over and over again for years and have been, hurt, been turned a deaf ear. This health system is not meeting the needs of our patients today. And we can see that if things continue the way they are now, with this board being unable to hold the administration accountable, the public and your workforce being unable to hold this administration accountable, the patients are gonna to continue to not get their needs met and our workplace will continue to be unsafe. We think that the same people who got us into this mess, we shouldn't expect that now all of a sudden we'll be able to fix it. Additionally, I wanna point out that we're starting to see a disturbing pattern. We pointed out before, uh, if you are black at AHS and you're on probation, you're twice as likely to be fired. Your own HR has come and reported this to the board before, multiple years in a row. We're now starting to see some signs of gender bias from this administration. Prominent female physicians resigning or being pressured out. Threats to close the women's clinic. We saw both an article from Joe DeVries in the newspaper and a letter to all of us from Del Vecchio about that. And now the layoffs of mostly female sexual assault response workers. Those are people that I work with in the ER. When we have sexual assault patients who spend hours waiting for their legal exam and are unable to drink, eat, brush their teeth, take a shower until that exam is done, these are the workers who sit there with them, help them navigate the process and then help them put their life back together. And now AHS is getting rid of them. So. I'm asking this board to start holding the administration accountable. We appreciate the gesture you made yesterday, but we it looks like our membership is giving us a strong message that a strike is going to be necessary to turn that relationship around. Thank you for your time. Thank you. 
I believe that concludes public comment. So Mike, can you give our statement for adjourning the closed session? Yes, the uh, board will be in, going into closed government code section 54579.9, excuse me, uh, performance evaluation. I'm gonna go ahead and get us started. My apologies for the delay, everyone. Thank you for your patience. Um, so mainly today, I think we've, we have so much happening in the world between the pandemic and the wildfires and the protests and the continued protests and um, just really want to thank our frontline uh, for doing what they do every day, day in and day out. Um, certainly I'm hopeful that we will not um, see, see a strike uh, here. I think um, we um, Certainly, I think that the um, putting in of a, of a new negotiation team that was alluded to earlier um, is, is more than a gesture. I think it, it's really signaling our intent to want to um, have good relationships and a good um, uh, path forward. And so certainly hopeful that the people of Alameda County that rely on our safety net won't suffer for it and uh, that we can be on a productive path forward. Um, but really just want to express gratitude for all that you do day in and day out. And that really concludes my remarks. Um, so Del Vecchio, CEO report. Yes, uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, good to see you. Uh, thank you for your comments, Trustee Avalada. If I could just add a uh, certainly a ditto from, from me and I'm, I'm sure I speak for the executive team as well. Um, and uh, um, hopefully on behalf of our community as well. So um, we have a obviously really packed agenda tonight and uh, uh, I'm sure we can catch up, but maybe we can close the time. So I'll try to very much limit my remarks. I was going to share some stuff uh, internally, but for the sake of time, I'll skip that and just say, uh, you know, we continue to monitor stuff that's happening in and around us as well. Um, uh, in addition to our, our pandemic response, uh, uh, monitoring things that happen in, on the federal level that uh, impact our services. Uh, as you know, we're getting close to an election. Uh, Congress is in session for another week or so. They have to fund the government as they do every year. Federal government is on an October, September cycle. So uh, you may have read recently that the House passed a continuing res resolution, kind of a clean resolution as they call it. Uh, one of the things that was in that uh, CR was um, a continuation of the dish cut uh, delays, uh, which we very much appreciate. Uh, the CR, though, uh, unless we get too excited about it, only funds the government for 11 days uh, post uh, past December. So it only goes to like December 12th, I mean. Uh, so we days of a dish cut, uh, but it signals that at least uh, there is a prospect that when we do the longer term funding during the lame duck, that maybe there's a potential that uh, uh, both the House and the Senate um, will agree to uh, further extend dish cut delays, particularly during the pandemic. Um, uh, the big piece of news for us on the uh, federal front was you've heard me talk a time, uh, several times about something called uh, MFAR, the Medicaid Fiscal Accountability Rule that uh, CMS was looking to implement. And this was going to have a very significant impact on uh, safety net systems, particularly in California, where uh, the rules were about uh, what are eligible sources of the non-federal share. Uh, and, you know, in the state of California, uh, a, a significant part of our Medicaid uh, uh, funding at the state level is actually uh, passed down to the counties and in our case uh, both the counties and, and, and the health system and this rule uh, that um, uh, hss was looking at pretended to make that disallowable which was going to significantly impact the state's ability to back fill those dollars and basically really uh, 
decimate the Medicaid program. And the, the fortuitous thing for us was that uh, states like California started this type of funding structure and leaned in to grow the Medicaid program. But a lot of other states do it now, and in particular, in this case, conservative states like uh, Texas, big states like Texas. And that was really the secret sauce to getting uh, uh, the, the tweet that came from Seema Verma to say that MPAR was not going to happen, that they were withdrawing it. Uh, um, and, and nowadays, tweets are as good as executive orders. So we took the tweet and everybody's kind of run with it. Orders today, the uh, president was in North Carolina, I believe, and issued four different um, uh, executive orders uh, uh, around health care. Uh, one was about surprise medical billing. This is kind of uh, is being uh, framed as like his uh, health care package or plan uh, in some ways. Um, uh, one was about surprise medical billing. One was about um, uh, how um, funding would be uh, uh, or, or provided for uh, pre, for covering pre-existing conditions. Uh, one was about mental health, and one was about pricing transparency. Uh, executive orders, just so we don't get too uh, excited about them, though, uh, are somewhat hollow because they require proposed rulemaking, rule and it's, it seems a uh, somewhat of a political move right before the election to say I've put out a plan. Uh, it also kind of uh, puts out some... Uh, some uh, at least ominous signs for uh, as we what what will happen with the, the Supreme Court as as we all know last Friday we lost um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, there's a very heavy push on the part of the uh, Senate Republicans to fill that seat. One of the big things coming up on November 10th is the uh, Supreme Court was set to hear the uh, case about the ACA, um, um, the uh, case that came from the appeals court in where. Uh, the lower court had basically struck down the ACA because they figured that without the individual mandate, it is not, it's no longer legal. Uh, the uh, Supreme Court was set to take that up. Uh, the, the appeals court actually ended up punting it. They wanted to send it back to the lower courts, uh, but it ended up uh, being um, 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 pushed up to the Supreme Court. And so uh, with, a, with a more conservative court, it's unclear uh, what would happen to the fate of the ACA. Uh, there's some potential outs if it were to be voted down, uh, uh, but it's not clear what will happen at this particular junction. So uh, a couple other things and several others we're following on a national front, but in this time I'll just say that. Uh, and then I, I said I won't say anything internal, but I have to just offer a few things. Uh, uh, you have heard I shared information with you all, at least in written form, that uh, we expect that um, – uh, we're back. We got notice yesterday from the Joint Commission that our county is back in the safe zone for them to come back and do a, a, a certification visit. So we're expecting to talk to them and, and coordinate that by providing information to them about what's happening locally, but also uh, understanding what their processes are going to look like. So we'll have more information on that. But as of now, we're back in the window and we're looking forward to demonstrating that we meet the conditions of participation and that we have uh, satisfied our corrective action plans from the last survey. Uh, we're finishing up budget prep. Next month will be all about going through finance committee and coming to you a significant portion of the meeting presenting uh, the final budget for FY21. Uh, I will say at this point, we uh, don't anticipate achieving uh, this steady state uh, um, target that we were uh, gunning for, which was about 3.8 EBITDA. We, we, the last time we gave an update, and you'll hear a bit more about that today, we're uh, slightly north of 2.0% in EBITDA. Uh, uh, and there's still some moving parts, but we're trying to button that up now. So we'll see where we finally ultimately land. Uh, we'll look to bring that forward to you next month. Um, uh, final remarks. Uh, you know, excited to share that we have a new chair of 
OBGYN starting, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, pediatrics, please forgive me, uh, starting next month. And she's also serving in a dual role as our designated institutional officer or, or um, uh, chief of graduate medical education. Uh, so we're looking forward to having her join. Uh, we are also, Pam Simsimaki is her name. She's coming to us from Children's Hospital, Oakland. I also want to give an early happy birthday to Trustee DeBreeze, whose birthday is coming up. And the only reason I know that is we're celebrating one year of SAFAR. And we went live on our EMR uh, about a week from now, about a year ago. uh, 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 And we're excited to make some wonderful, uh, you're welcome, uh, uh, some exciting uh, developments as an organization as a result of that. And really thanks for the uh, hard work and dedication on the part of everyone to make that happen. Uh, I'd be remiss if I don't say happy one-year anniversary to our CFO, Kim uh, Miranda, who has survived her first year and has not only survived, but done a really outstanding job at really uh, helping to shore up our finances, the presentation of our finances, and help to secure reimbursement and funding for our organization uh, as well. And I think that's the last thing I wanted to say. Oh, uh, my one plug, I look forward to talking to all of you. Uh, on the one-on-ones for our strategic planning efforts. I uh, thank Trustee Shikwan for going uh, first today. He was our guinea pig, and we thought it went really well. Uh, and Ishwari and I are looking forward to talking to all of you. And uh, Trustee Banerjee, we're, we're, you're next up. So hopefully we polish off some stuff, learn some stuff from Trustee Shikwan, but we're really looking forward to those conversations. And with that, I'll, I'll hold the rest of my remarks. I'm happy to entertain questions about that or anything else. Okay. Thank you. Any questions for our CEO? All right, moving right along to medical staff reports. Uh, Chief of Staff Report. Trustee, it'll be Dr. Kevin Smith representing the Chief of Staff Committee. Thank you. Hello, thank you, uh, President Abalata. And uh, thank you, CEO Finley, for letting me know that there's not a new chair of OBGYN. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'd like to get some sort of notice around that going forward. Oh, I'm sorry about that, man. <laughs> no, I get it. Um, thank you for uh, allowing me to present today. And uh, I'm a rookie, so work with me. And I do know that these data have been presented to you last week. And there really isn't much in the way of amending for those, um, with the exception of the credentials and privileging portion. We have 17 resignations documented. Um, there has been one. Uh, one of those has been rescinded, so that number will uh, be amended to, to 16. Uh, a couple things I do think that are worth highlighting are the department reports, the annual department reports that happened at our last uh, MedExec meeting which I think left everyone who heard them completely proud and impressed with the efforts that are being made by these individual departments and um, are representative of a lot of the hard work, as you mentioned, uh, President Abelada, on the front line. Uh, Lab and pathology uh, presented, talked a lot about... um, new laboratory equipment, EHR implementation, as well as all of the excellent, impressive, fluid COVID COVID testing management that they've been um, shepherding. Orthopedic surgery uh, reported on increased clinical volumes on both in and outpatient settings, and also associated quality improvement metrics and uh, described their first QRC. General surgery 
listed many, many uh, new specialists uh, and services that will obviate sending those, those services outside of AHS and more importantly, provide those services in a patient-centered realm here at AHS. And they also reported on their mortality for trauma, which is lower than the national average and was also very impressive data and kudos to that team. And I think without any other questions, uh, referencing the data that's already been sent to you, that would be my report today. Great, not bad for a rookie. <laughs> Whose job was gone five minutes ago. <laughs> Questions for Dr. Smith? Dr. Smith, thanks for that report. If you wouldn't mind repeating kind of what we did in QPSC, could you give a brief, and I know not everyone's present, could you give a brief introduction to who the five members of the Chief of Staff Committee are uh, representing through the end of the year? Yeah, that is a um, clearly something that I meant to, to do. Thank you for lobbing that one up there, Taft. Uh, I'm sorry, Trustee Bouquet. Taft, <laughs> I like making it easy for people. <laughs> uh, so the Medical Executive Committee has um, approved, the Medical Executive uh, Committee has approved this Chief of Staff Committee, of which I am a part and representative today. There are five of us in total, Brandon Besh from Internal Medicine, the Director of the Hospitalist Program, Nikki Joshi, Chair of PEDS at Alameda Hospital, Valerie Ng, um, general all-around royalty in the system, and uh, head of path and, and lab, uh, Eric Yasumoto, head of radiology. Thank you for that. We will be in that role until we have uh, a new chief of staff selected. There has been a nominating committee ballot approved. Uh, we think that will go out early October there is a 60-day turnaround for uh, votes to, to come in, and there are nominees for the role, for the position. Thanks for that. Thanks, Dr. Smith. Fantastic. Any other questions for Dr. Smith? So is that the entirety of the medical staff reports then, Dr. Bouquet? Uh, there, there should be one from Alameda Hospital if Dr. Kathy Pian is is on, I don't see her. And then sometimes Dr. Ingenu is still uh, is finishing out his role as the San Leandro uh, leadership committee, but I don't see him either. Uh, Taft, this is Idris. I'm oh, uh, hi, sitting How in are you? for, hey, uh, I'm sitting in for Mike. Excellent. Uh, Idris, if you'll introduce yourself to everybody, please. Hi, all. Uh, Idris Asali, I'm the Director of the Emergency Department at San Leandro and also the Vice Chair of the San Leandro Leadership Committee. Uh, I could give the San Leandro report if, if you like at this point. Please, please. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for having me. I'll, um, we'll start out by saying that San Leandro's uh, in, in recovery and again in, in preparation mode for the, for the next uh, flu season and, and uh, an expected resurgence of, of COVID. Um, our volumes in the emergency department have been uh, bouncing back nicely. Uh, we're about 20% below our high uh, earlier this year in January, uh, but year to date, 
since last August were only about 10% below volume. So uh, we've been seeing pretty a pretty good return back to our baseline. Uh, not only that, but higher acuity, uh, which is reflective of higher admit and transfer rates. Uh, just yesterday, we had a 21% uh, admit rate in the emergency department out of almost 78 patients uh, that visited the, the ED. Uh, Hospital-wide, we have uh, sufficient supplies of PPE uh, and uh, remdesivir. Uh, the uh, COVID testing in conjunction with Highland is going great, uh, no concerns. Um, and uh, of course, uh, thanks to Dr. Ng for helping set up all those protocols for us. Uh, palliative care is now successfully extended throughout the hospital. Um, uh, in, the, in regards to prepping for the next season, I wanted to specifically thank uh, our admin support, uh, Glorinda Petraeus, who's been in her role less than six months. Uh, she's been very supportive and helpful in helping us plan for the next steps. Um, and other than that, uh, I think uh, it covers San Leandro. If there's any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Any questions for Dr. Osali? Thank you, doctor. And Thank do we you. have anyone from Alameda Hospital? I don't see anyone, Trustee Aboleta. Okay, thank you. Well, Dr. Smith and Abzali, I really appreciated the reports today and I appreciated the data. I'm a kind of a self-confessed data nerd. And so I, I like that a lot. I hope we can get more of that um, in the future and just kind of that bird's eye view into the departments. And so um, definitely, you know, hoping for, for more of that and to be able to hear more from you all. So thank you very much. Trustee DeVries, you had a question? I do, and I don't know if it really fits here or not, but I know that there's a, the, the, the county put out an RFP for expanded testing. And I believe uh, AHS was was considering doing some expanded testing sites. And I'm wondering if that's something that, that if there's an update on it. And if not, that's fine. I know there was a site in Oakland I was curious about if that was moving forward. Entering here, I, I don't know that Felicia's on the line, but yes, we are moving. I'm 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 here, Andrea. Okay, Felicia, did you want to take it over? Go ahead. Sure, no problem. Uh, yes, uh, Trustee, we are um, definitely moving forward. We are working with the city of Oakland to lease the parking lot of the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center. Um, that was the same site as a prior COVID um, testing center. Um, we are planning to go live towards middle to end of October. And we'll be, of course, partnering uh, with, with the county and utilizing um, a commercial lab called Fulgent and a results portal called Healthvana. Um, and we are excited to also um, have some hours for essential workers in our three testing days, which will be Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Thank you so much. I'm glad to hear it's happening uh, in the next couple of weeks. That's great. <clears throat> We're, we're yeah, excited too, Trustee DeVries. It's, uh, I, 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 it would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to really uh, congratulate and, and thank uh, Tangerine and, and Felicia and a couple of other uh, folks who are just heroes who have been pushing this boulder uphill for quite a while now. So it's really exciting. And the team is really amped up about this and doing a lot of great work. And I even heard good news from our foundation today that they, or yesterday, that they found an in-kind donor to donate meals to the staff. Uh, uh, while they're out there uh, offering the testing. So the uh, all-around team effort that 
uh, is finally coming to fruition, but maybe just in time uh, uh, for the next wave and other sorts of needs that might uh, surface. So we're excited about it. And congrats to all those folks. That's great news. Thank you. Excellent. Anything else for our doctors? <laughs> all right. Committee reports, QPSC, Dr. Bouquet. Thank you. Uh, we, uh, the July, uh, excuse me, the August QPSC went off in uh, normal fashion. We approved the consent agenda, which included credentialing and of course all the policies and procedures, which were kind of lesion about 30 of them. We had a nice discussion in chairs uh, 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 agenda item about psychological safety. And we reviewed some articles from Dr. Amy Edmondson, who works at the Harvard Business School and uh, is considered one of the foremost thought leaders on, on psychological safety. And I kind of want to read a quote about that um, uh, quickly. Question, and it, these were two interviews with her, so I, I, I encourage the trustees to take a look at these documents. Uh, how can leaders create psychological safety amongst the people they lead? Edmondson says, on one level, this is simple, but simple doesn't mean easy. First, set the stage, create a shared understanding of the nature of the work we do and why everyone's input matters. Second, having set the stage, proactively invite input. Ask questions. What do you see in this situation? Most of us feel awkward when not when asking a question in, uh, directly of us and not answering. So it's a great way to get answers out of people. Third, respond with appreciation and not defensiveness. Defensiveness can kill psychological safety pretty instantly. Respond with responding with appreciation, however, doesn't mean you're thrilled with what was said. It means you appreciate the courage to come forward with bad news or your perspectives in service of understanding and improving. Uh, it's important to note that psychological safety is a necessary, a necessary, not a sufficient condition for organizational success. So I thought that was a, a nice article uh, in these challenging times that we're having to, to, to how, how are the, what are the things that we can do to help us be better? Um, we heard from medical staff reports, and then the great bulk of the discussion centered around a very passionate topic uh, for many people in this organization, the intensive outpatient program, the IOP. Um, we, we allocated a full 25% of our agenda to this discussion, and we had kind of, if you will, a roundtable discussion with the key players, uh, Dr. Tanu Siddhartha, the interim chair of psychiatry, and Dr. Paul Babaria, who's our CAO of ambulatory, under which the IOP sits. And then we had uh, on, on, on the counter uh, dialogue or the uh, opposing uh, part of this debate, uh, we set it up as a debate, where Dr. Ron Seff, the medical director of the IOP, and Dr. Chip Freed, who's the program manager for the IOP. We, we had a long discussion about this very, very passionate topic uh, using the tools of STEEP, which, uh, which those of you who come to the Quality Committee know about. We talked about safety. What are the safety implications of the IOP in its current state and or a closure? We talked about timeliness, which model, wellness program or an IOP provides more timely access. We talked about efficiencies, efficacies, equitabilities, which model is more equitable? We learned some things about the geography uh, of, of where the IOP sits and how that affects its patient population. And then we talked about the impact on staff. I think it was a robust dialogue, um, and we, I, I do want to reiterate that, that to those who are on both sides of the debate about what's, what to do with the IOP, it, it is not for this board to, to make a decision on what, what becomes of the IOP. 
this is going to occur within the context of of the budget. And 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 uh, what what I was hoping to do is, is is have an informed dialogue because I know it's been a very challenging one to navigate for this organization. I I think it was a very respectful dialogue. I hope it informed uh, 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 all of us in 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 particular our administrators and how this decision making is made in giving consideration of all those things. That was the bulk of the meeting, and um, I'll open it up for any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee Bouquet, and thank you for your leadership in having that discussion. I know the full board has heard a lot of comments over a long period of time, and I feel really comforted that, that you were able to have that deeper dive, so thanks for your leadership there. Thank you. All right, Audit and Compliance Committee, Trustee Jensen. The Audit and Compliance Committee met earlier in September, and um, there was a, um, it was, I don't want to say good timing, but the, the fact that we, um, the committee was able to meet the, I, I'm not, I'm going to get the title wrong, but the Chief of Operational Security, something, the person who is um, looking at Chief data. Information Security Officer. Right. So we were able to, um, to meet that new the person in that new position and also learn a little bit about um, the potential for security breaches and potential security breaches that um, have happened in the organization. The, the committee discussed the meeting schedule for audit and compliance and um, also discussed the um, leadership transitions that will be happening next year and we're moving forward to begin to share more information. There was a, also a discussion about how the full board should receive and um, the amount of information that should be pro provided to the full board from audit and compliance. And the committee agreed that the full board should be able to get more information as has been done with QPSC. And now the full board gets more information from the med staff. So similarly, with audit and compliance, there'll be more more information shared at the full board, and we're working on the best policy to do that. That's my report. Thank you. Wonderful. We'll look forward to that. Thank you, Trustee Jensen. Any questions for Trustee Jensen? Great. Moving right along. Finance, Trustee Shequin. Thank you. Good evening. So, uh, finance met on September 10th and uh, received. Uh, a report on the closeout for the year, so a closeout of June, which would be the closing of fiscal year 2020. Of course, it's not an official closeout because that happens in conjunction with the audit. Uh, but the early numbers suggest that <laughs> despite it being a completely different type of uh, uh, fiscal landscape because of COVID, uh, we were able to actually uh, end in the black. Uh, with a more positive EBITDA than expected by 1.4%. Uh, um, so that, that's good, but it's not really a measure of the ongoing struggle we're having to stay within our budget because there are a lot of one-time uh, grants and uh, yeah, grants that we received through the CARES Act uh, that uh, basically probably are, are not likely to be repeated given the federal government's um, uh, reluctance to uh, fund more stimulants. 
So uh, in the in the fiscal year we're in now, we basically have to live with what we got, and we have the same challenges around volume and so forth. Uh, there is a conversation happening about, um, you know, one of the comments in the grand jury report was a thought that maybe uh, the board of trustees were focusing too much on EBITDA. And I think, uh, you know, that uh, there's some truth to that, that uh, there is so much we have to be concerned about um, that we sort of look for the high level measurement of EBITDA. There's been a conversation about actually also uh, joining, uh, having the operational margin as a clear benchmark for where we are. And, uh, you know, if we're not able to reach zero there, then we're, uh, it's a clear indication that we've, we've got, uh, difficulties. Again, we were able to have a healthy, uh, operational margin relative to our status, uh, at the end of fiscal year 2020. Um, again, I, I don't know if we can even, uh, you know, hit zero on that, uh, given the goals that, uh, given the work that staff's trying to do to prepare the budget for uh, October, the final budget. Uh, to that final budget, I think the biggest challenge uh, seems to be around trying to find enough resources to fund uh, capital um, that is very nece- necessary capital expenditure. Uh, these are items that, you know, relate to putting roofs on buildings and and, uh, making sure we're not using Windows uh, 7, which uh, is not uh, uh, actually uh, up to security standards. Um, So we have a very, we have a lot of um, unfunded uh, maintenance in the organization, and we have a very challenging uh, approach to gaining capital resources um, in our budgeting process. So that's something to, to pay a lot of attention to going forward. Um, the other thing I want to, the last thing I want to uh, talk about is the uh, WIFRI re- report uh, that we received before. They've been, that firm has been retained for a phase two. And just a reminder, it's a um, uh, effort to get at uh a greater refinement around our analytics. You know, where are we within particular programs, uh, within particular cost centers? We know we have losses in certain areas, but, what, but getting a better, clearer picture of what those losses look like, maybe uh, what the strategies might be to resolve those losses. Uh, so that works underway. Um, staff is working diligently with um, uh, the consultants on producing that information. And I want to add uh, with our CEO, my gratitude uh, for uh, Kim Miranda's uh, uh, leadership. It's, uh, it, it's really good to have her in the place of CFO because uh, she's uh, very transparent and uh, responsive to trustees and their questions. So I, I want to congratulate her for making a year and show my gratitude for her leadership. That's my report. Uh- Lewis, do you want to comment about the net negative balance and where we are? Well, there's that thing. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee Peterson. So there have, there's an ongoing conversation uh, with the county about the net negative balance challenge uh, related to the upcoming recoupments, which get rather large in uh, December. 
uh, and uh, their meetings have been canceled. I understand we have a meeting now scheduled again. I think, uh, you know, one of the challenges, I think, for the system is not knowing where we're going to land on resolution of, of cash flow challenges created by uh, um, the, the current conversation isn't providing us uh, direct commitments to uh, to make us whole if uh, if we uh, when we realize those recruitments. So that continues to be a conversation. The, the spirit of the conversation is positive. Um, there is a cooperation happening. It's uh, a, quite frankly. For this trustee, the the not knowing, um, you know, we had a conversation in committee about uh, concerns about even being able to pay our vendors on time uh, if we if and when we hit the net negative balance uh, uh, line there, which we're going to with the recruitments. Yeah. So uh, we look to our partners at the county to uh, work that out with us and to begin to provide some assurances. Thank you. Trustee Peterson for that. Okay. Other questions? That's my report. Thanks, Trustee Shipman. I guess the only thing I would just clarify, I think you said it, but uh, the conversation around the operating margin versus EBITDA, and they, they both are reported there, but we tend to focus on EBITDA. And my recollection or understanding of the conversation was operating margin is sort of commonly used and will be a way for us to benchmark ourselves against others more readily. Right. So, right okay. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. That's exactly right. And EBITDA is a good way to look at what we've used EBITDA for is a way uh, it's a a margin that allows us to assure that we have some uh, cash available for for capital, but it's not adequate. And quite frankly, it's it's sort of a a weak marker for us. So operating margin will allow us to benchmark and uh, really know where we are. Yeah, we can you, we can use it to benchmark. This is this is Kim. Um, EBITDA is a, a reflection of cash flow from operations, but it's just cash flow from the current year. It doesn't have anything to do with our NNB. But it, I think uh, looking at both is the right way to go. We can benchmark to others, one or both metrics, and I think it makes a lot of sense. I, I also wanted to to uh, comment on the CARES funding we got and some of the timing differences. Like we got paid early from the county for HPAC. That was a big chunk of money that went into FY20. The CARES Act is part of the audit. As I understand, they're gonna look at matching the money we received with the relief period it covered. So it's possible they'll take some of that out of the our financials for 2020 and move it into 21. This is hot off the press, uh, what, you know, what the, uh, um, audit, uh, what the audit will um, entail, but I have talked to Moss Adams. They're um, looking at guidance from CMS and others, and uh, we'll know more. But it just—I just wanted to make sure everyone, everyone realized that we'll have yes, the the audit entries we have every year, but there's also going to be um, some manipulation of the CARES funding between Thank the years. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I just, I just want, if I could just interject, uh, I feel like operate, our operating margin should get to zero. In other words, our income equals our expenses. And that's where I, I think a, a healthy, a minimum healthy organization needs to be. And it is it is a tool that's used by others as well. And and we do list the operating margin too. So that's right. 
Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It's this would yeah, be we'll just look at it as more of a goal. Exactly. We'll call more attention to it. You'll see actually when we get to the dashboard presentation was coming up, we've actually added it there so you can see both of them uh, more readily. But you're right, it is it is there. It's been there, uh, but we can do that. Uh, if I could just actually shed an additional light on the point that Kim just made. This actually just happened last Saturday and it's still some movement. So originally when the CARES Act dollars were released, there was a lot more flexibility for how organizations could uh, uh, use it to define either increased costs that were related to pandemic-related expenses or lost revenue. And the um, last Saturday when HHS released a new interpretation of how they would um, uh, look at these fundings, they put um, a pretty, pretty tighter uh, set of parameters around the lost revenue side of it. So they really defined it as uh, lost revenue from net patient revenue uh, proceeds, uh, as well as they uh, cap uh, the ability to cover it to your revenue that you made in a prior year. So if you um, or, um, if you made a certain amount of revenue, uh, like net revenue in a prior year, and that was based off of some action you took to maintain your expenses and other things that were maybe one time, uh, you're in some ways potentially penalized uh, from that. Uh, in the net revenue piece, uh, there's a great amount of concern for a lot of hospitals that um, this type of restriction could result in giving money back, uh, but particularly for rural hospitals and safety net hospitals. Yeah. Risk for us in this case, uh, at least as I interpret it, is things like we rely on a, a substantial amount of supplemental dollars, some of those based off of tax subsidies or, you know, uh, tax revenues. And if those things went down and they're not counted in the pool, which in fact happened for us, right? Sales tax went down. We lost some measure eight dollars. We also lost some uh, AB 85 dollars, which are also based off of uh, taxes uh, that if they can't count in that, we can't actually count those towards lost revenue. Uh, so that is a potential problem. And the fact that it just, they sent it out like last Saturday. So organizations like us that have a Ju Ju July to June fiscal year are also in the same bucket of completing their audits to close their books. And now you have auditors who are scrambling now to try to understand uh, what this actually means uh, and actually do it in the context of completing an audit for organizations. So there's a lot of uh, angst uh, happening uh, all of this week uh, relative to this uh, action that they took on staff. More to come. <laughs> yeah, so a lot more to come. Yes. And Kim, do we, from, our, uh, from Ma Moss Adams, given all of this kind of fluid things, are we still on track? Uh, do they seem to get our, have our audit done on time? Well, what they said to me is that uh, we'll continue um, moving right along. Um, it's part of the single audit that includes the whole testing for COVID. So um, it may be that that gets delayed if we don't have final guidance. Um, but uh, they seemed fairly confident that we'd be able to achieve the um, dates that, you know, we've, that we've traditionally and had planned for for this year um we'll, we'll know more soon i uh, that was his you know that was the best information he could give me thank you other questions on finance committee um 
executive committee and COVID task force, um, there's really nothing major to report. And in the interest of time, I think I'm just going to go ahead and um, um, skip those. There were no no major items there. Um, let's see. So Alameda Hospital seismic planning ad hoc committee update. Uh, you know what? I, I think in the sake of time, I can just submit a report, a written report. but. Uh, uh, basically, where we are is our we've uh, looked at, at legislative advocacy, which I think we talked about last time, um, and we uh, completed our initial round of it, which was not successful because um, SB 758 uh, did not pass, and um, uh, and went down to the feed, and then uh, we also uh, talked about exploring an increase in the use of the Alameda Hospital and ED. And we, uh, uh, Lewis uh, uh, worked with us uh, to look at uh, uh, the idea of expanding our emergency geographically and uh, spoke with EMS about it. And it turned out that in the initial discussions, it didn't look like it was viable. Uh, we also were gonna talk about uh, the ideas of uh, adding other services like perhaps Jurosyc or medically compromised psych unit, but those discussions haven't taken place yet. Uh, we also had talked about exploring uh, <clears throat> reconfiguring the emergency department so that we could also maybe have primary care coverage there. It turned out that that's not feasible because of the staffing requirements around it. Uh, and then we uh, we also talked about some other options, but we ha those haven't been explored yet. Uh, the uh, uh, district board, this is a joint meeting that's uh, between the Alameda Hospital District Board and the Alameda Trustees. And the district board uh, told us they had met with, uh, with Supervisor Chan and she had recommended that they start a process of uh, working with community stakeholders in the future. And, uh, and uh, uh, anyway, kind of, in kind of in terms of next steps, uh, we haven't given up on EM EMS transport discussions. We're uh, talking about having some expanded discussions with them, but it seems like it's gonna have to go to a higher level to get anything resolved. Um, we're, uh, we agreed that we would, one of our next steps would be to put together the critical path what are the things that we need to do and when do they have to be done by to meet the seismic uh, 2030 requirements? And uh, kind of when are our drop dead dates when beyond that date, it might not be possible to move forward. Uh, we are also talked about continuing uh, legislative advocacy and uh, talked about meeting with some legislators and Alameda uh, Hospital District Board felt like they could take the lead in some of that. and we offer to join them if it would be helpful. Um, and then uh, we uh, talked about uh, 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 looking at defining the scope and process for engaging a consultant to facilitate the community stakeholder meetings that uh, Supervisor Chan recommended. And then uh, finally, uh, as part of the upcoming Alameda Health System strategic planning process, we wanted to suggest that part of that might be how to optimize uh, looking at the array of resources across the system, including how we might best use Alameda Hospital. And uh, uh, and and I will submit a report uh, actually 
uh, one was put together. I'm sorry, I didn't get it to you in time, but it has a little bit more detail on it. Anyone have any questions? Thank you. Delvecchio? Yeah, sorry, Trustee Pisa. Do you know uh, if the uh, community, I, I think it's great uh, that uh, the, the uh, district is going to uh, proceed with some discussions with the community. Do, do you know if there's uh, discussions would include um, um, uh, possible funding uh, for a seismic uh, refill, like like uh, or not refill, great rebuild, uh, if it's around like you know a taxing uh, effort or anything like that? Would that I, I I think uh, Tracy might be able to add a little bit more to it because she may have been part of those discussions. But my understanding that 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 is part of the discussion. But again, uh, I, it's my recollection. I I don't know firsthand. The district board has um, had discussions in the past, or, or I, I won't say discussions, but the, there is a uh, Alameda Healthcare District committee with the city of Alameda, as um, and Luis Fonseca has participated in that, as you have Del Vecchio, and so in those uh, commit those joint meetings, there's been discussion of what the future will mean when um, when and if the requirements to rebuild much of the hospital happens in 2030. I also um, did tell the joint committee last week that the uh, city council, there's a city council election. There's two seats um, available for the city, Oakland city council, excuse me, the Alameda city council. And as part of the forums from the legal and voters and other interested um, parties, the, the forums for council members have asked and the council candidates have responded as to whether they would support city contributions to retain Alameda Hospital. So it is an item of discussion. It has been discussed and will continue to be discussed. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions about Alameda Hospital seismic planning? All right, um, moving to the consent agenda. Do I have a motion? So moved. Second. Second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed or abstain? Trust me, I have a lot of, I'm sorry, I um, I basically have been talking for the last five minutes, but did not unmute, oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> now there, I just want to, there is one item on the consent agenda, which actually uh, should be stricken from the consent agenda, and that's the top of page four. There's a policy there, the debt collection management policy that was discussed at the finance committee but that's not yet ready to be passed by the board so if you could just modify the consent agenda or the the motion would be to approve the consent agenda with the deletion of that item motion to approve with the deletion of that item second all those in favor Aye. 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 abstain or against all right great motion passes thank you touching that mic all righty Okay, Mike, you're up again. Um, discussion of, of the uh, grand jury response. Yes, so uh, we did uh, take the opportunity to uh, post the uh, response at the beginning of the week and uh, you know, try to explain that uh, 
we had hoped that we might be able to post it, you know, along with the other materials at the end of the week, which would give you actually the full weekend uh, to review it. But we were uh, trying to engage in some other efforts to, you know, perhaps facilitate a, um, a response, you know, that would, you know, involve some collaboration, you know, with us uh, and some other folks. So that did not come to pass. And so uh, I do want to be clear that what we're looking at this meeting is an opportunity for your initial questions or comments that you might have about the draft, understanding that there was a limited amount of time, you know, to actually review it uh, with the understanding that it is not our intent to ask, you know, for the board uh, to take an action on the item this evening, but rather, you know, if there's questions that we can answer for you about, you know, any of the content uh, items that you would like us to uh, look at further and bring back in a draft, you know, for the meeting next month, you know, more than happy to do it. Um, and then, you know, the plan is, is that this will be on the agenda uh, for the meeting next month. Um, there would be certainly opportunity, you know, at that point, you know, for further, you know, comments and feedback. Uh, but we would be uh, anticipating looking, you know, to approve it at that meeting. So, so I'll just pause right there and see if there's any initial questions or anything uh, that needs to, uh, you know, comes up, you know, by way of uh, either the process or the content that's uh, reflected in the document. Um, Mike, uh, this is Maria. Yeah. Um, there's a section called Mission Creep and Changing Circumstances. Um, huh? You know, I, I don't know if that's, you know, something that I'm comfortable in our description of what we do. I would almost say that we have been responsive. It's on page, um, it's on page six of the document, page 80 of our 531-page uh, board book. Um, I, I don't, you know, I just was a little uncomfortable with the way that sounded, and maybe it's oh. because maybe it's because in consultants, uh, in a consultant's world, we talk about that in a very negative way, like, oh no, we have mission creep on what we're supposed to be delivering. Okay. So. If we could, I, I think we've been responsive. We've been really trying hard to go where the people need us to go in terms of the type of services, the type of um, you know vulnerable populations that we're working with. Um, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just the only one reacting to that, but just help me out. I think mission creep sounded in the negative, and I, I think it's a positive. Just just a thought. Nope, understood. Appreciate that. Any others? I agree, Professor Hernandez. I have the same. You know, we talk about that as a bad thing, and our mission is quite broad. It would be, <laughs> it would be hard to I saw that and I said, wait a minute. I think it's a good thing that we're responding to all of those changes. So anyway, sorry that if two of us if two of us saw that now you know okay i appreciate the, yeah, the, the uh, catch too i actually thought that it was in response to maybe a section of the report and we were sort of framing our response in response to the uh, i wasn't sure actually yeah, come up with it which i don't know uh but either way i i, I take the same uh, uh perspective and so i didn't actually opine about it because i thought it was just we, we were responding to a section of their report and i couldn't recall that yeah. but if we were and i agree we should we should frame that differently yeah, so Mike, if they use that term, let's just say it's not mission creep. It's right. actually being responsive. So yeah. Yeah. thank you. 
Well, I think for anyone who wants a history lesson of how we got to the structure we're at today, it's a great piece, yeah. very readable and yeah, um, lays it out, lays it out nicely. And I, I don't know if we have room for this, but one of the things that I thought um, had always been very impressive to me is the report from the California um, essential hospital report of what all essential hospitals are dealing with. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have a copy of that, could we attach it and share it with them? Because that report seems to um, summarize we're not the only um, essential hospital in, you know, the current financial uh, straits. I mean, we're all facing similar concerns. Maybe, maybe it's not exactly the same, but that report seemed to be very comprehensive. So just a thought. I, I like that. And thank you, Maria, for um, pointing out the mission creep that had completely, uh, I had glazed past that, but now that you say it, yes, I have a couple of things in track changes, but I can't pull it up for now for some reason. So I will just send it to you, Mike. Uh, okay. It's in the measure A section. Okay. Would we consider attaching the WIFLI report along with that report from the um, essential hospitals that Maria referred to? Yeah, that, that was my suggestion too. Like we have the, because like that really documents so well some of the structural and all of that issue. So with the California Public Health Hospital, the WIFLI as well. Yeah, thank you, Tristy. I mean, we paid for it. We might as well, you know, spread it around. Yeah. Other questions or comments about the response? It's what quite hard. It's, it's quite hard. But I think it needs to be. And I'm sure it'll get well read. What is the timeline for submission, Mike? Uh, October 30th. So is it that the county will submit something as well? Or how does that work? Yes, the uh, county will submit as well. And, you know, if you may have noticed in the uh, underlying report, they identify specific, you know, findings and specific recommendations that each of the parties are respond to. So some of them, they will provide a response. Uh, both of us are providing a response, but there's a couple of findings or recommendations uh, that they're responding to as opposed to us. So, and I don't know what their timeline is. We, we obtained an, an extension to uh, submit our response. I'm not sure what they've done. And are both of these responses available to the public? Yes, they end up going on to the, uh, well, they become part of the file of the uh, 1920 uh, grand jury report. Uh, but then going forward, <clears throat> you know, on the uh, website, you would have both the report issued by the grand jury and then the responses by whatever agencies were the subject of the report. Yes. We, we did get, uh, in meetings with uh, several board members, we did get feedback that it probably, you know, I think at one point we asked whether they wanted to join us in our response. And I think the feedback we got is because of their relationship to the grand jury that that probably was inappropriate. Yeah, I heard that. 
Okay. Well, I will uh, look forward over the time between now and uh, the next meeting, you know, any additional feedback or thoughts that might occur to you. Um, and I will uh, do my best to incorporate these items uh, into the, uh, the final draft that we post for approval for the October meeting. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, next is the action item, the approval of the True North metric dashboard. CEO Finley, if you had. Sorry, yeah. um, so I, I don't know if I see Tanvir uh, on here. Uh, there's a lot of folks yeah. in Okay, there he is. So I will I will just briefly say my, my part. Uh, uh, usually when we present the uh, dashboard, we don't, uh, we, we present it to you in the materials and we just uh, answer uh, questions for you. We go into detail with certain parts of it in uh, the various committees, like, you know, the um, access, the quality and the experience ones we go through in our quality committee, the finance metrics are generally discussed as a part of the CFO report in the in the finance committee, and then the rest, the entirety of the report comes before the board. Similarly, we take that same approach to how we establish the metrics. Ultimately, the dashboard is approved by the full board, uh, but the particular sections go through uh, the so, as I mentioned, access quality experience is adopted or endorsed by the quality or QPSC committee, finance metrics by the finance committee. Those two things have happened in this point. Those are four of the pillars, and then there are two more. One is network, which is about how we are moving towards population health, how we partner with community partners, other providers, as well as our patients. Uh, pursuing risk and trying to understand or, you know, perform in that respect. And then the other is our people, uh, which generally goes through HR committee. Uh, we were a little delayed in that we didn't have uh, the uh, metrics uh, or the, uh, the discussion, I think, ready for the last HR committee, or maybe it was earlier and this one is later. So there's a little bit of an off cadence uh, for that. So that, that particular set of metrics, which uh, the indicators are actually the same as they were uh, last year, we just recalibrated the uh, the uh, target. Uh, our uh, ones that uh, I know our uh, CHRO has had a conversation with uh, the chair of uh, HR committee, uh, Trustee Jensen. So, so informal discussion around that. But um, in the interest of time, I think HR committee is not until next month. We wanted to bring this forward so we could go forward with the dashboard. So effectively, four of the uh, pillars uh, and the metrics in them have been discussed and adopted by committees. Uh, the HR committee hasn't had the same chance to go through the other two, but as I mentioned, they're the same. But they don't have to be the same. So um, it comes before all of you to say, are you okay with those metrics uh, for those um, uh, two as well as um, in the uh, the network uh, category, which uh, just to elaborate on that one too, those two indicators are the same. Uh, the second one, which is around um, uh, my chart signups for uh, Sapphire, last year we didn't put a target on it because we were just going live and we just uh, tracked it and monitored it. This year, we want to put a, a uh, an aspirational target on it because it is important for us to start to leverage and use, utilize the tool more. It is important not just for getting people to uh, sign up, but they get to see their records. They can communicate securely with their provider in it. Uh, telemedicine, we're doing a lot of synchronous video, uh, uh, audio um, uh, appointments with our patients if they are signed up through the portal or through uh, the Sapphire uh, portal. And so it's really increasingly important for our future in terms of how we deliver care, how we communicate with our patients. And so that's why we've set a target on that. So I'll pause there and uh, entertain any questions or thoughts you may have. And 
And my hope is that I, we can secure your approval so that then we can continue to move forward. If there's uh, too much discussion and you'd like us to pause or bring this back, we're happy to do that as well. Questions or discussions? Yeah, yeah thank, thanks for the detail on that. Those are very well laid out. <clears throat> and the safety alert percentage, is that new? That, that, uh, yeah, that was discussed in uh, our QPSC trustee. Yes. So yeah, we, uh, as you remember, as a prior member, uh, Trustee Banerjee, we, we started setting up in May, June, we started having those discussions. And we landed on these 11 items here approved by the QPSC, the four under access, the five under quality, and the two under experience. So uh, we, we, we shuffled a few safety alerts with one of them. Uh, recommended practice under experience was another. Um, uh, we avoidable days per month. Did we have that Tanvir last year? I can't remember. Yes, we did. We did. Uh, we did. And we added child adolescent access to primary care ages 12 through 9 at the very top of the of the you know, that document. So, uh, uh, yes, those are the quality relevant items, which uh, uh, to support uh, uh, Mr. Finley exactly what he said. Those those have been vetted through the quality committee. At least those items. Excellent. A small a small note. Uh, it's it says adolescent care uh, ages twelve through one hundred and twenty nine. You might want to fix that. <laughs> well, uh, we're all kids at heart, right? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we we will fix that. Apologies. Uh, good, good catch. Well, sorry. Just Hernandez. Yeah, uh, Tracy, did you want to comment on the work the HR pieces because you and I had. You shared with me, you know, those items. And I shared with you uh, uh, some feedback. Well, sh sure, um, Trustee Hernandez. I, I had a brief discussion with the um, with the CHRO with Tony Redman, and um, it unfortunately there was not a lot of time to review it. So I, I asked that we get it back and discuss it further. But why don't you? share your idea about the uh, about the the metric that you that would be helpful and useful uh yeah and and this is something that obviously we'd want to bring to the board but i have a concern that we should look under workforce um at the diversity of new new hires so i'm not asking that they'd be broken down by departments or levels or anything but that we look at um, the percent of hires that are, you know, African American, Latino, white, Asian, and just have that as part of the dashboard because, again, we should be trying to reflect the diversity of the communities that we serve. And um, I know we want to keep the dashboard to one page, so that that might make it go and spill over to another page, but it would only be just a summary for each of the demographics that we know are part of our uh, county and again it's just just to reflect are the new hires anywhere near uh the the uh, composition of the county so that was the that was the suggestion and um if i could you know i, I did have a, a brief conversation with with tony redmond about it and it is a value definitely a valuable data point we want to make sure that we're that we're, we're our demographics are are in line with our region and I, I one of the things that and tony absolutely agreed that he could provide that information but whether or not it would be part of the dashboard was another 
issue. So we wanted to discuss it more further in um, in the HR committee. Okay, and, and yeah. the only push I would make is that uh, you, you all know that I'm working in this area. The, if your staff reflects the diversity of the community that you serve, chances are they're more comfortable and more assured that they are being heard and they're feeling, uh, you know, that they're safe and that they see others who are like them within this, uh, within our system. And Absolutely. so, you know, uh, if you want health equity, it means that we have to have culturally competent care and I, that I, diversity matters. So, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to no, apologize okay. for that. Uh, I think we, we wholeheartedly agree with you, uh, Trustee Hernandez. Uh, um, and again, you know, you, you all will decide whether you want to take action. We're certainly comfortable with holding on this and bringing it back. One of the things, um, uh, Tony did share this with me, and one of the things I, I uh, remarked on was uh, we could either you know, uh, extend this and do that, or uh, uh, you you will recall one of the deliverables from the heady work, uh, uh, one is a set of recommendations, the other is a dashboard actually for us to uh, measure our work against what we, what we set out. And so we had talked previously about having a dashboard that uh, 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 kind of accompanies that set of um, uh, um, values and goals that we uh, set out and then having a different cadence, uh, kind of a biannual look at how we're moving on in, in that respect. So that's an option, but uh, if that's, you know, if that feels too infrequent or uh, you feel like it should be on this particular uh, dashboard, um, uh, it's your call. Uh, we're just offering that as something else for you to consider if you want to move forward tonight, but if you don't and you want to discuss it, uh, we can hold off on that as well, whatever your preference is. Mm -hmm. I, I do feel it has to be somewhere prominent, so that is right in our faces at all times, and we are tracking it. So, how we do it if it's on the heady dashboard? Is that going to be part of something that we see all the time? Um, yeah. So we were we were talking about reviewing it uh, twice 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 a year. Uh, so that was originally what we talked about, based off of looking at not just the. Uh, the metrics that may be placed there, but also the work, uh, so the recommendations, and the the sense being that. Any of that work takes a while to do, so uh, uh, just having a meaningful frequency that would actually give you a chance to see what it would, what, what things look like in a, a period of time. At least that was the thinking. We can we can flexible your call. So, just can I yeah. just offer something, Maria, on the listening to what you're saying? It, it's going to, if I heard you correctly, and I heard uh, Trustee Jensen's feedback correctly, it was to look at the on a monthly basis. Uh, the demographic breakdown of those people we hired. So I don't, you know, from, I'm thinking very visually now as opposed to the data. The data is not difficult for us to get. It's not going to fit very effectively here in that it's going to have to be several slides just based on the the breakdown and then looking at the number of people hired into each of those categories on a monthly basis. So providing the data is not difficult. It depends on how you want what this dashboard is ultimately the purpose it's serving and how we might provide that exactly the same information in another way that may be equally useful to you. Yeah, uh, I was gonna keep it super simple, Tony. It was gonna be a straight up percentage of uh, the, the, showing what the county percentages are of each of those demographic groups and the percent of our hires that match that. So it wasn't gonna be a huge big change, but I get that it might not fit on this one page and I know we're kind of trying to keep to that, so. Well, in the interest of time, I, I was just going to offer we could we could we could hit pause on this and take feedback. I, I don't want to take too much of your time tonight to 
of Joe delivery wants. on it, but uh, it's up to you. Joe's got some feedback. I do, uh, and really quick, I think that <clears throat> if we're going to institutionalize an effort towards equity, then that needs to be reflected on the dashboard that also reflects the rest of the organizational goals. So if to have it separately, where it goes into more depth with Hetty is great, but if it's not on the thing we all look at every month, then it's not a priority for us. And so I think we do need to, to raise it up, <clears throat> even if that pushes us to two pages. That's the first thing I want to say. Second thing, I'm really curious about it <clears throat> in terms of the, the more in-depth analysis. Do we look at the county? So as far as our benchmarks and our goals, we need to, you, obviously we need to look back at where, where we were right. and then what's our goal moving forward. But should it be by the county or should it actually be by the neighborhoods surrounding the facilities that we have? Because quite frankly, we don't have much in Livermore, but Livermore looks a lot different than Oakland where we have a lot of you know, facilities. And we know that two thirds of the people that visit the emergency room in San Leandro are coming from Oakland. Uh, so I think that's a significant sphere of influence as well. So for the analysis, I want to see if we go that mm. further. Well, this was exactly our deliberations on this as well. That's why, like, we could do this, uh, but it is going to take a lot more work. And that's what I'm saying. If, if we, and I appreciate it. It sounds like you want us to do this. Uh, we can actually work on it, but it sounds like we just, we can't do it tonight, obviously. So. Yeah, it's okay. And, and what Joe's saying is, is actually the right thing to do. We should be looking at it from our catchment area, right? The, the zip codes that are most frequent to our site are the ones that we should be looking at. Livermore isn't necessarily a place that you know we're seeing a lot of patients from. So I'd like for that kind of analysis to be thought, thoughtful. And if we do need to go to two pages, you know, well, we look at a lot of stuff anyway, it's okay. So but um, I'm not asking Tony for a breakdown of the division, the level of hire of the department. It's really a kind of a, you know, just a, a, a crude number, but an important one for us to think about. It does sound like we need some further discussion on this. And I guess I would say I would I would probably suggest we look at our actual patient population um, and being reflective of our patient population if we have those numbers for sure. Something that got raised in public comment that um, may, be, may be worth looking at, I don't recall um, hearing about it before, is who's hired into temporary type of roles, the demographics there, um, because we know that that is a tool of many systems um, and we just want to make sure that, you know, we have a line of sight, I think, on that and also who successfully completes probation or not. And so um, I think there's a number of things to consider as we kind of move along this. So it sounds like we need a further discussion and this may be a good one for our retreat um, if, if that's not too far out. And so um, I see you smiling, Dovecchio, that's too far out. <laughs> Uh, well, the retreat's in November. Um, um, if you do it in a retreat and you have the discussion, then we probably would, and you don't meet in December, we'd be bringing you the dashboard in January. And that's happening. Is it fair to um, approve it without the, the changes to the HR piece? Because HR hasn't met, and then we want to have this discussion, and it sounds like we're good with the quality and all the other items that went through committees. You could certainly do that. Yeah. How do folks feel uh, like so that? We'll I defer to Trustee Jensen. I mean, I'm fine with that. It's just we would need to come back with a modification if it's okay. No, we would just, we would take the HR ones out if you want to replace them with something else. Those are good. It's just, no, we want to keep, them. right. <laughs> yeah. We would, we would keep those. And um, I would suggest if, let me ask, can we pass what's there right now and um, then add one after our HR meeting? next in two weeks yep we could always bring it back an updated version 
uh, we'll we'll work with what you get and well, if you modify. No, no. Uh, what I was saying is, it's, no, I, I, I was following. Yeah, we'll we'll go with this, and then if you add something, then we we won't. We'll bring it back to the full board at your next meeting. The things that you add, but we'll keep this if this is what right. So I would move approval of what we are looking at right now of this item, and then um, we'll submit after the HR committee meeting an additional additional um, metric. Okay. In this area. Second that. I'll second that. All, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Anyone abstain or against? All right, great. Motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic. Okay, Trustee Hernandez, heady update and action item. Um, actually, um, there's two different items for consideration for the board. And um, what you have in your packet are two different statements. Um, I think everybody recalls that for some reason, we started down the path of uh, creating a statement to endorse the Black Lives Matter movement. And <clears throat> I know that Del Vecchio uh, committed uh, the community to that in one of his statements, but it's not something that the full board had done. So you have two statements in the packet. Um, the first one is the modified version of the health equity pledge, which um, thank you to Trustee uh, Bandry, uh, Banerjee because she helped um, flesh out some of those additional vulnerable populations that we were concerned about. And uh, Trustee Shaquin had mentioned a few and others had brought others to the table. So that statement, I think we are trying to continue to use as the uh, committee's pledge around health equity. And it is really focused on all of the different populations that we serve. So I hope that we've captured that now uh, given the comments that you had last time. Um, the next statement is uh, the Black Lives Matter statement. And these, these two statements might end up on our website. They may end up simply uh, being somewhere in, in our diversity and inclusion uh, area, which needs to be fleshed out. That's part of the uh, one of the, the steps that I know we are thinking of taking for the committee. But um, I think that uh, the board should feel comfortable with both, obviously, for you to endorse. So, Delvecchio, any other comments? Did I capture that correctly? I think so. I, I have nothing to add to that. So, uh, ready to entertain it if you are, and if not, then ready to take your comments. Thank I you. Have, I had one one uh, suggestion is on the Black Lives Matter statement uh, about the fourth paragraph down when we talked about uh, standing in sol solidarity with activists and protesters. I, I felt we should insert something like nonviolent protesters. So we're not in, you know, we're anyway, that's a concern that I have. Thank you. Other comments or discussion? I think in my reading of it, you know, activists and protesters demanding justice. I mean, I, I hope it's a foregone conclusion that we're not gonna support, um, you know, violence or something like that, but I'm not sure. I think I, I worry that calling it out kind of, um, uh, insinuates that 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 they're 
you know, that they're synonymous because I think that there's um, been a lot of confusion about that in terms of the Black Lives Matters protests that, you know, that have been very peaceful and others have been agitators in that. And so I just would want to be careful with that as well. You know, the only other observation I have, I, I'm, I'm fine with both. Um, I, I wonder if the Black Lives Matter statement um, just has gone into a little bit of the health equity statement. So if there's some way to maybe just make sure that we're really clear about, you know, one of these is, I mean, the Black Lives Matter statement really is about the terrible injustice that we're seeing in multiple systems. And um, if, if it's, of any value to shorten it so that you're not covering somewhat duplicative of the pledge, but it's okay. I, you know, if we need to repeat ourselves and say it more than one time, so be it. Um, the piece around um, protest or maybe it's just simply saying, um, you know, we're inspired by those protesting for accountability and change and who are demanding justice and you don't have to say those other two sentences. So, or those, that one little phrase. Stands on its own. Yeah, it would stand on its own, yeah. Other than that. Yeah, I'm good with that. Uh, <clears throat> I don't want to offer any wordsmithing. I just want to offer my, um, my gratitude that we have both the <clears throat> excuse me, the health equity statement, which I think is important, uh, but is broad. Uh, you know, the board last month asked that it include many groups, but I, I, I think it would have been um, an oversight at, at this nature to not also have that other statement. Because we know, we know that when, when it comes to a lack of equity, whether it's in health or in justice or anywhere. Education. Um, education, you know, that that it is, it has been the black community that has suffered the most. And, and if you can lift up equity for that community, if, a, if, a, if you're lifting it up for the, the, the LGBTQ community that is black, the immigrant community that is black, you know, so I just think it's important, uh, especially it what happened this summer. So thank yeah. you for adding that. And I yeah. think they should be side by side. Uh, yeah. I agree, know. I agree. They, they're both necessary. And with just I really people. like the thoughtfulness and the detail in that because yes, anti-blackness is very real in a very um, aggressive way. So yes. Mm -hmm. Any other discussion? I move approval. Second. Oh, we're taking them together, right? I just want to make sure. Yeah. Oh. If if we could just say maybe that one sentence is just. Oh cleaned up a little bit. Sorry. Just in respect to the concern about nonviolent protest, like, <laughs> if we can find a way to say it without making it awkward. <laughs> Is knocking down statues violent? I, I'm sorry. I don't <laughs> I just. Is defending yourself against uh, police brutality violent? Well, we're you know, out. I'm just. Please. Yeah. Sorry, officer. You fit the description. Apparently. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 think I would leave it alone personally. Well, it, that's okay. I, I think the concern that um, Ross had was um, around the word protesters. Maybe if we just take that out, it doesn't need, it's not needed. Mm. I agree. Those demanding justice, however. Yeah, it doesn't weaken yeah. it. 
Yeah, I agree. It doesn't weaken it. It just takes that one potential misconstrued nature of that being seen by others. We understand it. Seems like a good solution. All right, so I move approval with the removal of that one word. There you go. Second. Third. (laughs) All those in favor. Aye. 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 Passes unanimously. Thank you. Thank you for all that work on that, Trustee Hernandez, and and everyone that that put a lot of time and effort in there. Thank you. And King Kinney. Thank you, King Kinney. Good statements. All right. Next, we have an update on healthcare for the Homeless Co-Applicant Board. Dr. Damon Francis, welcome. Oh, I was muted. Am I on now? Yes, we can hear you. Yeah, Thanks so much for having me. Uh, the I think the slides were sent to you in the packet ahead of time. I'm not sure if we're going to put them up as we go through, but I can just uh, I have them here next to me so I can use them. They're all in words anyway. Um, appreciate you guys having me, and uh, we'll try to keep it brief and, and leave a little bit of time for questions for you. Um, I think my main goals today were just to orient you all to the Healthcare for the Homeless program, um, and you know let you know what our activities are right now. Um, orient you to our um, consumer-led um, federally qualified health center, community health center governing board, and, and make sure you all understand uh, the role of that that uh, group of people. And then just you know let you know kind of what's front and center in our world right now, given um, given everything that's happening. As I think one of those vulnerable group, vulnerable groups that um, that you all are attending to, you know, in the um, equity messages and absolutely in the Black Lives Matter messages. Uh, obviously, people experiencing homelessness. About 50% of them are African-American in, in uh, our county and about 10% of our population is African-American. So um, it's, it's incredibly intertwined with uh, racial equity issues. Um, so um, I think the, the main, um, the main uh, focus of the, of the slide that we had on um, the structure of the organization was just, um, it really is a, is a slide that comes from the perspective of um, the the federal government and the HRSA program that gives us the grant that makes us a community health center. So I think as you all know, you know, community health centers are an outgrowth of the civil rights movement in the United States. Really, it's a community-oriented primary care model brought back from South Africa, um, really in the context of trying to provide care that, um, that could you know, mitigate the, the health factors that, um, that came along with apartheid and came along with, with racial oppression in South Africa. Um, and so we at Alameda Health System are actually both, you know, a government entity, but we're also a community health center. Our Healthcare for the Homeless program is the community health center. We're part of that movement. Um, we um, therefore have a consumer go- consumer-led governance, so a board, which is our co-applicant board, our homeless health center co-applicant board, which um, is more than 50% um, uh, consumers and um, and have to do program planning and strategic planning on the basis of the needs across a place. So, um, our, you know, we're really required to consider equity geographically in terms of the mandate of, of community health centers. Um, here at Alameda Health System, the scope of those centers includes basically all of our ambulatory services that are provided either in our wellness centers or on K6 and K7 at Highland or at the dental clinic at Highland. So both primary care services, specialty services, dental services provided to people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, and over the past few years, the regulations have changed around um, around how public centers that are both public institutions and community health centers 
um, need to be structured with regard to their governance. And that's resulted in really the creation of a new position, which is the position I've been filling since um, since uh, late February here um, in order to sort of fulfill those governance requirements and make sure that there is a position within our institution that is responsive to that consumer board and that really oversees the strategic direction of the scope of homeless health center services. Um, so um, I think many of you may also know my colleague, Heather McDonald-Fine, who's uh, the practice manager and kind of my, my dyad partner um, in the leadership of the program. Um, I've talked to you all about the scope of our services just to give you a sense of the size. So um, what was considered within scope for us, for HRSA last year was about, uh, or last year and this upcoming year is about 20,000 visits of about 4,800 unduplicated patients. Um, our budget, which is really sort of an estimated budget on the basis of what's passed is uh, by you all. And then, and then um, what, our, what our board approves really after the fact from, our, from your budget process, um, you know, through the organization and up to the board of trustees um, is about $11 million. And we report 67 FTE to serve that scope of services. So the way we think about that is we try to tie you know, an ambulatory clinic visit, an enabling encounter visit, which could be with a community health worker or health education specialist to a particular cost. And then we roll those up to a budget. Now that, that budget is real from a governance perspective. So we have to submit that to HRSA. Um, that has to be approved by our board. If our board does not approve that, um, that budget, um, then we are at risk of losing the federally qualified health center status that we have. Um, and the, the really critical thing, I think, for us, the, the, the critical benefit beyond really being able to engage consumers directly in governance of the organization is to receive um, augmented billing from Medi-Cal in particular as a federally qualified health center. And I think a crucial thing to understand is although the scope of um, the homeless health center is really constrained to people experiencing homelessness, um, the scope of the benefits for FQHC billing are only site-based. So any patient with Medi-Cal who comes to one of our homeless health center sites, say Eastmont Wellness Center, um, whether you're homeless or not, we're able to bill Medi-Cal and receive FQHC rates for that patient. Um, so it's a really critical benefit that you know underscores um, and, and underwrites the services we provide to the entire community in our ambulatory care uh, system inclusive of you know dental services and specialty services um obviously um you know i'm really proud of our board and excited to uh to be able to uh to work with them i think that's one of the major things that um that really drove me to you know return to um to alameda county to to work in the area of um you know healthcare for the homeless where i worked previously in for the county directly um our board has you know, obviously consumer leadership with lived experience, people who have been and are patients of Alameda Health System, people who have experience in homeless services, both on the practice management side and um, on the clinical side, and, uh, you know, people with experience in research and evaluation, people who serve on arts commissions, public, you know, uh, other, other public boards, other private boards. Um, so we're really proud of the group that we have and very much interested in, in you know, stewarding the Homeless Health Center um, and, and the, the design of you know, the services in this really intensely challenging time. But I think this, this time where there are tremendous opportunities to restructure how we, you know, how we think about what, um, you know, what healthcare is supposed to look like that's gonna help us achieve health equity. Um, so just 
you know, the, the major issues we're facing now, I, I left a link that's in your materials to a much more in-depth assessment that you, you all can take a look at 10 pages, you know, I, I, as if you need more complexity to review in your lives. But, um, but if you're interested, there's something there. There's actually a slide deck also that's laid out really to try to be more accessible, um, you know, for, for, for folks who, um, who, you know, just, just view things in different ways. Um, but, uh, you know, the, I think at your level, kind of the things that, you know, uh, that it's worth you being aware that we're thinking about, you know, with the co-applicant board is really what does our work in homelessness look like after the COVID, um, you know, pandemic? I think it's completely reshaped um, homeless services um, because we've moved so many people into hotels. Um, we've really uh, dramatically expanded the street medicine programs in our county that are, you know, built on programs that, uh, that uh, you know, Roots um, has been a leader in developing in, in our county. Um, and so the services that we provide both in primary care um, and our outreach services are really going to change, have changed already and are going to continue to change. We need to figure out how are those going to be solidified moving forward? How are we going to think about um, leveraging some of what we've done to reduce those barriers to care um, that, you know, that, that people experienced before the coronavirus pandemic? Um, I think another thing I'm excited about that, you know, we're just beginning to discuss on our board is how to, how to integrate consumer-led governance with heady efforts. I think uh, there's an improvement advisor from, you know, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement that I worked with who said uh, patients are rocket fuel for improvement work. And uh, I just think that, uh, you know, there's, there's tremendous opportunity in getting our consumer-led governance really involved in work to drive equity and to kind of cut through some of the complexity and some of the hemming and hawing that, that can happen with that kind of work and get to, you know, something that's really meaningful for, uh, for our patients and our communities. Um, and then finally, I'll just say, you know, there's a lot of opportunity in this role, thanks to the implementation of EPIC, thanks to the development of the um, Community Health Information Exchange, the, the Care Connect Information Exchange, for us to really leverage data uh, to drive some of our improvement activities, some of the work to reduce barriers. And, and uh, so we're really looking forward to and starting to, to do some PDSA cycles around who's assigned to AHS but hasn't been to primary care that's in one of the hotels? How do we go out and proactively find them? How do we shift our care models to do that work? How do we work in partnership with you know, our housing partners, our outreach partners, our clinic partners to do that work? And I think you know, five years ago when I was here, um, without Epic, without Care Connect, that kind of work would have been impossible. Um, so lots of things happening recently to be really excited about amidst you know, all, the, all the really troubling things that are, that are happening in the world at the same time. And uh, I think I'll end the presentation there and just uh, take any questions if, uh, if you all have, have any. That was fantastic, thank you. Trustees, questions? Yeah, again, uh, just kudos to your team, Dr. Francis, and to see, like, it's so thrilling to see the improvement uh, PDSA things that you all are doing. And I, I think I'm going to frame this word. What did you say? Cut through the hemming and hawing? <laughs> I think we see a lot of uh, it's if that is what your co-applicant board is able to, you know, really bring the focus down. It, it's it, it's really good. And uh, uh, with with this, you know, slew of evictions and all of that and so much, uh, I, I think, as winter comes in and the rains come and things become, um, we are going to see a lot more of the issues that you're seeing right now. So I think we really have to brace ourselves for the coming months. But um, And the flu season, of course, so COVID and all, all of the things that one could do 
um, becomes so much harder when one also has to physically distance um, folks. So um, thank you for what you're doing. And I hope like our heady committee, the integrated community group uh, will be partnering closely with you to see what the needs of the community there. Yeah, I know Damon, the, the I just, board is looking forward to that. Hey, Damon, this is Taft. How you been? <laughs> Good. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just going to support what what everyone here is saying. Thank you for your passion, your skill set, and your leadership for for the homeless. This is this is what our health system. Uh, this is part of what our health system is all about. And uh, I really thank you for your leadership on this. Amazing stuff. Yeah, I, I uh, right back at you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And as I said, I think. You know, just in the time that I've been away to see the investment that Alameda Health Systems made, um, the work that Heather's done standing up the co-applicant board, the work we've done implementing Epic and Care Connect, it, it really creates tremendous opportunities, you know, uh, to to lead in the space. And so uh, I think I think the feeling is really mutual, you know, uh, for me to, to all of you and to the leadership at Alameda Health System and, and especially to our frontline staff who I think um, it's just really it's it's a it's a joy to to to, to work with uh to work with them and just see their passion for the work as well. And 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 I you, thank you for giving me pause. What I said to you goes as much for Heather. I've known her for so many years. What 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 a secret weapon for this organization. Actually, not a secret. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Heather. Thank Dr. You. Francis, did I hear you right that you were gone for five years? Uh, about three and a half, but I three rounded I rounded uh, up. <laughs> you made me feel really old. I was like, wait a minute, what happened? I missed something. Where did you go, dude? <laughs> uh, where, where did you go? And welcome back. Yeah, I, I was at, uh, I'm still at a national nonprofit called Health Lead. Uh, as the chief medical officer, we work on, um, you know, health healthcare and human services integration, um, really to achieve health equity in communities. We've done some work partnering with, uh, with Roots um, as part of that organization. I continue to, to work there part-time just uh, just you know, a few hours a week, um, but really spend you know spend the bulk of my time here. My clinical work is at AIC, and it's really given me a view of you know how um, organizations around the country are addressing health equity in the context of you know partnerships between healthcare organizations and housing organizations, food organizations, and I think um, it's made me proud to come back. You know, I think I left with a lot a lot of frustrations, and I think I returned. Um, you know, no, I'm not like, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, like uh, Pollyanna about anything, but um, but I really am so um, proud of, you know, the, 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 our ability to collaborate, our ability to use equity to drive results here in Alameda County and, and the things our community can do together. I think we often describe ourselves as really fragmented and that's true. And, you know, I think the governance issues you all were talking about earlier are an example of that. I mean, at the same time, I think it's led us to be really creative around how we build partnerships and how we build programs, uh, really in all the nooks and crannies, and, and with you know, with our patients and our community members in the lead. Um, and and I, I do I do now have the experience to say that that we can be proud of the work that we're doing here um, and should be. And, and I think there's a lot to build on. I also wanted to um, make one comment on the shift that you acknowledged with the pandemic. How you know. It, everything's changed with all of the, 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 the initiatives from the county and the state around the hotel, you know, the room keys. Um, one thing I've noticed at the city is that our, our response to everything, because we shifted into the emergency operations center back in March, like a lot of city functions 
suddenly we're operating out of the EOC, and it caused many of us doing the work we do to reevaluate how we do it and to look at it as an emergency response. And I'm thinking even more significantly, you know, a few weekends ago, we quickly opened up some air respite centers. Um, and, you know, admittedly, it was done very quickly. We didn't do the outreach to the, to the encampments that, that we would have liked to have been able to do. Like, we certainly had people out there, but maybe not to the extent we'd like. But it just makes me think that everything we do now has a COVID and an EOC response. I'm wondering if healthcare for the homeless can, um, you know, take advantage of, and I mean that in a, in a, in a positive way, um, you know, uh, access to PPE or access to additional resources that could be um, supplied through the emergency response that will have a net benefit to our homeless response. And so I'm wondering how you're seeing that merge together in a way that could actually open up even more um, resource opportunities. Yeah, I believe that what you described has happened. I mean, I think at the at the beginning of uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, our mobile health staff and uh, the, the county-led healthcare for the homeless program really partnered on setting up um, really practical, you know, emergency response type things. So we have, you know, still going a weekly meeting with all the shelter providers invited and, you know, up to upwards of 100 um, shelter providers showing up at that meeting on a regular basis to figure out what's happening here. How can we distribute resources that are in need? And we really built, I think, simultaneously these structured hierarchical emergency response systems, but also these communication mechanisms that allowed for people who, you know, didn't sort of fit into a category and say, oh, you know, in my city or I'm in an unincorporated area, how do I get PPE? Or in my city, it's not working so well. Well, you know, here's some other people we can put you in contact with. Um, to do that. So I think we've been able to leverage um, the crisis to really deepen the relationships and deepen the partnerships and, and deepen the collaborations in some ways. Um, and I think, you know, what we're going to be left with is figuring out how to institutionalize some of that structure and how to continue to bring more resources to bear at a time where, you know, the tax base is not what it's going to be. And, you know, public budgets, you know, if you're not the federal government, you can't run a deficit, but our community needs us to somehow. Um, I think those are those are the challenges that we're facing more. But I, I would say, you know, our colleagues in the county have, and and in the cities, you know, City of Oakland has been a tremendous partner in, in the homeless response. Um, have really done a lot of work to do what you're to leverage the crisis to to deepen the collaboration. Thanks, Dr. Francis. I think, um, and my question is maybe piggybacking off of that one a little bit. But at first, I just wanted to really appreciate you and just for you know. For, uh, for being able to sort of, I mean, you're, you're say to get the project lead or whatever for, for HRSA project director, sorry, for HRSA, that's super complicated, complex stuff, you know, around all that cost reporting and all that you have to do to working with the consumer board, a whole different skill set that you also possess all in one person. So I just wanted to really appreciate and also like congratulate AHS for, for having you with us leading this work and also your leadership around um, some of this, what you're talking about with hotels and folks being able to rapidly get housed and take advantage of the moment. Um, so I guess my question is around your number one kind of current issue concern or thought is like, what is the, about the post COVID work? But I guess my question is more like, what's the on off ramp almost because I mean, like, I'm worried about a cliff, and I, I say that about housed as well. We have eviction moratoria, you know, all the displacement that was happening rapidly pre-pandemic kind of got a pause button hit, you know, during the pandemic. And so I'm just wondering, 
is it, um, you know, what do you see it as kind of there's there's some transition that we're going to be able to be able to work through and plan or is this going to be sort of a drop off where all those resources that Trustee DeVries spoke to are gone um, and now the folks that were were the most worried about are an even worse kind of situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned, I think Delvecchio alluded to it in his, you know, um, CEO report that it, we're really going to depend a lot on the federal government, I think, um, you know, over the coming year, because um, the reality is without new resources that come in to support their work, you know, our collaborations are great, but they don't, you know, build housing, they don't provide rental subsidies, and these are the things that we need, and we've gotten emergency funding to do that, we've done amazing work. And it's sort of given the lie to like, you know, I, I gave a talk to these journalists like last year in this Health Equity Journalism Fellowship, and I put up an article they wrote about, you know, homeless officials. And I was like, you know, we gave you $10 million last year and you didn't solve homelessness. It's like a $800 million problem, you know? Um, you know, yeah, we, if you give us money, we can get 2,000 people in, in hotels really, really quickly. And, and with more money, we absolutely, and there are communities around the country that have proven this with more reasonable rental markets that we, that we, that we have, that you can end homelessness. This is a thing that's possible to do. It, it requires resources to do it. We have the expertise in this community to do it. We really, I mean, you know, Trustee Shacoin's organization, you know, other organizations, we have the expertise. We just need the resources. And I think the state, you know, has their hands tied. The cities and the county have, have their hands tied. And we're really going to rely on figuring out, you know, how can we get a policy infrastructure and a funding infrastructure that can support the work we know we know how to do and we know will save lives. We just need the political will to do it. Amen. Vote, everybody. <laughs> well, if we end homelessness, we'll have to change the name of the organization. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we and, and that's, you know, that's one of my talking points. Yeah, don't get me going. Don't get me going on that. I mean, I do. I do think we'll. You know, we we probably can. You know, be creative about about transformation locally. You know, we will have to be. You know, whether whether we get new resources or not, we will have to be creative. But it's hard to speculate. That's uncertainty. That you know, I I think it's really hard to make predictions about, and we're just going to have to jump in and innovate. And be and collaborate and support each other. Um, either way, you know whether we get a, a boatload of new resources that we need or or we don't. Oh, that's cool. So true. Fantastic. All right, a lot to be done. Um, but thank you so much for that orientation. That was really helpful. And I believe we're going to be hearing uh, periodically now from you all, right, on a quarterly basis. That's my hope. I think we're gonna we're gonna um, try to work with QPSC um, more directly and and figure out you know the right ways to work with you all. Certainly, you know, really excited to get your input around that. Also, really excited to be part of the heady process um, and, and to to connect with um, with the board's work through that process. Yes, I actually just wanted to lift that up one more time. Is um, I love that you connected your work with the uh, consumer board to the heady work, and in any way that we can get our patients' voice um, in that work, I think is absolutely tremendous. And that that we already have a structure in place. I know we have more than more than one, but um, you know, patient advisory type of. Um, uh, constructs. I think um, feeding that into the heady process is absolutely critical. So thank you for making that connection as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Dr. Jamaladeen, update on East Bay Medical Group. Hi. Good evening. Uh, can you hear me, President Avoleta? 
Okay, good. Yes. So uh, I want to try to see if I can share my screen, and it seems that I can. Let me just do this. So it's uh, just a quick presentation uh, about the East Bay Medical Group. Uh, I was uh, hoping that Dr. Nilsson would be with me, but I didn't see him among the audience. So this is uh, our uh, board of director currently. And uh, uh, we have Dr. Nelson, who is the vice chair, elected vice chair. Uh, I'm the chair of the committee. This is a transitional board. We have Dr. Hearn, from, nominated from the O'Care Medical Group, Mr. Fonseca, ex-officio, uh, and he was prior on HP board. Dr. Michael Lenore was uh, elected, uh, was selected and elected by, uh, by HP and O'Care Medical Group uh, before, before going into transition board. Dr. Valerie Ng, who was on the HP board, uh, uh, prior HP board, and Dr. Kathleen Clannon, who is a community director. Now, Ms. Kim Miranda is uh, nominated uh, as treasurer. She's a non-voting member. So this is our transitional board. Now, uh, as you know, we have gone live on July 1st we, uh, with uh, 244 employed providers. We had 98 uh, who transitioned from O'Care and uh, 56 service as needed provider. In addition of 77 HP provider transitioned uh, also uh, uh, from, from using ADP to Lawson Cronus and 13 new hires uh, uh, since uh, July 1st. So we, uh, we have uh, launched the human resource information system in Kronos uh, as a timekeeping, uh, which is a tool utilized by AHS. And uh, we hired the three new administrative staff. Just some of the physicians we have hired, uh, you know, in the, pa in the immediate, like past uh, probably couple of months, uh, just, uh, uh, you know, each one of them is like really amazing people. I just want to highlight uh, Dr. Uh, Pam Simsmacki. Uh, she came into AHS and the reason we hired her in AHS because she's going to play dual role as chair of pediatrics and the chief graduate medical officer or designated institutional official. Uh, Dr. Payam Afzali, uh, he is the chief of OMFS. You know about the transitioning of OMFS from uh, University of Pacific to UCSF. Uh, he, uh, we hired him in EBMG just to have to help in the transition. I think recently he he switched to the UCSF uh, employment, uh, and uh, this transition has been amazing. Dr. Avzali, like in about six to eight weeks, he did surgery as much as we have done in a year in OMFS, like uh, about thirty-six very complicated surgery. Uh, we have here also a number of the providers. Each has like amazing stories. Just here is our chief, Dr. Hernandez. He's our chief of ophthalmology. This is a misprint here, and he recently started. Uh, the key milestone that uh, we have been able to achieve, uh, besides sorry, besides the transitional board, uh, is uh, uh, the approval of the professional service agreement. Uh, in addition, I have, uh, we have been doing ongoing town hall meetings with the physicians, without the chairs, and uh, Del Vecchio has been joining me uh, to this town hall meeting that we did uh, for each division and each department uh, to listen to the doctors and see what are the issues that they are facing, whether it is from the HR perspective or from operational perspective or uh, things that they find uh, difficult during their day-to-day -day work. And these were very, very uh, helpful and very enlightening. 
they were well received by the physicians, so we're going to continue doing them. Uh, I should say also provider, as we had also advanced practice provider other than physician. Uh, we have put up the compensation committee in the EBMG, and uh, they uh, they are working on the incentive uh, 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 like uh, metrics for for the ten percent incentive for the OCare medical group. Uh, and they are going to work for future uh, plan for incentive for uh, future uh, in the EBMG for all the physicians. We have the nominating committee also is up and they are starting to seek nomination for the board. And uh, we have been doing operation council with all the chairs and the chiefs as relevant uh, and on a biweekly basis and addressing all operational issues and, um, and hiring issues that are in the department. Uh, and uh, uh, this is like a bi-weekly meeting also. We are doing it with the chairs on individual basis. Uh, we have in operation with an EBMG, we have been trying to align with AHS uh, through uh, finance. The finance staff has been helping us tremendously and looking at the scope of services and tracking all, uh, uh, all what we have in the PSA. Uh, we're about to finish the scope of services and uh, uh, and try to uh, uh, present it to our chief executive officer uh, in the next uh, in the next uh, months. Uh, the HR team also has been working uh, together. We have a new uh, uh, like PTO policy that we are applying. The payroll. We're implementing a time tracking uh, tool, which is a QGenda. Uh, which we have started to work on, and we are expecting it to really go live in 2021. Uh, the professional charge captures, the physicians are starting to see their RVU by department in giving their input about it. Uh, the finance team has been very helpful with this. And uh, in addition, the quality team um, has been helping us to develop the quality dashboards for the department and the service line. Dr. Hussein has been very, very involved with this. Uh, we have Dr. Gupta, who is the director of value-based care. And in addition, uh, you know, I should congratulate Dr. Hussein. We were able to uh, start a fellowship in quality. We have Dr. Evan Rusocha, who is a graduate from our ED uh, residency program, who uh, is uh, working uh, with Dr. Hussein as a first, like we call, quality uh, fellow. And uh, his, his, his task has been really to see how we can uh, use data to build skills of uh, uh, of uh, analytics for the physician and build the physician leadership based on data analysis. How data can be transformed into information, information into knowledge, and then how can we make changes, whether it is in processes or behavior, to improve the care, safety of care, and the efficiency and quality of the care of the patients. Uh, others, we have been looking at policies and procedure. The PTO policy was revised and approved in July 2020. The CME policy was revised. Our last meeting, we'll have a holiday policy, which we are reviewing, and a leave policy uh, under, uh, under review. And then we are working also on a provider performance evaluation and improvement as necessary. Uh, the work plan for the board, uh, the potential EBMG bylaws revisions. We know that uh, uh, Dr. Abuleta is suggesting some revision. I met with her, with Dr. Nilsson, and we are going to bring those to the board in the future. We, are, we have the approval of the two interested EBMG members, which the nominating committee is working 
on nominating and approval of one community director. And, uh, uh, and we, have, we are waiting also for the EHS Board of Trustees to nominate a non-interested uh, uh, director. Uh, so this is where we are. Uh, I just want to thank the staff who helped me with this presentation. They put my, my, my photo. I didn't want them to do that. But Karen Black, uh, who has been with us since 2014, and uh, I, I don't know how she finds so much time during the day to do all what she does. It's amazing. She works like more than 15 hours. I just have to tell her, Karen, take rest. Leah Mitchell, who, uh, who uh, joined us from the O'Care Medical Group, and uh, she she's like another amazing person and has been very, very helpful. Uh, Maritza Zamora, who works on the onboarding, she's from Satira's group. She joined the team, also helping with physician uh, onboarding. Tamika Walker, our HR generalist, also she came uh, from the O'Care group, and Tamika has been like really wonderful part of the team. And Jesse Saputra, who's our analyst, and he's been like tremendous help to, to help us with the Kronos and with uh, our HR uh, partners in AHS. So with this, I'm going to end and uh, open for any question. Kazan, can you go to the first slide, please? Uh, the first slide, yes. Let me see if I can do it again. Here again. So this is the first slide, yes. Oh, uh, the second one, sorry. Yeah, oh, the, second. the one that, that... Yes. You see, let me just present it. Do you see it? Oh, sorry. It went back to... No worries. Yes. Yeah, is... so, so these are um, the current board members. And is Dr. Michael Lenoir one of the... Uh, he's a... Um, is he AHS? I'm sorry. Um, Is he one of our community doctors? No, he is, he is a community physician. Uh, mm -hmm. He is a pediatrician who, uh, who's uh, been in Oakland for a long period of time, very well known by the community. So he's not employed by East Bay Medical Group nor by AHS. Excellent. He works with, uh, he works with Lifelong right now. Excellent, excellent. And so now what you said was that there are there's going to be Two more positions open, then one more community uh, director, and then one, uh, maybe one or two, I guess, AHS board uh, uh, trustees. What does non-interested or whatever that you said? So, um, so non-interested that means non-employed by East Bay Medical Group. So, uh, your your uh, your board is going to nominate one person. And then the nominating committee will nominate two East Bay Medical Group physicians and one community member. So okay. we we are uh, we need four. Okay, and you, uh, Gasan, are the chair of EBMG. Currently, um, I'm the chair. Uh, uh, it's an in, uh, and then also president and president of EBMG and chair of the board are two different uh, positions that you're holding right now. So I, I am holding the interim president, and I was okay. elected to be the chair. Uh, it was okay. uh, it was uh, suggested uh, from your board, actually, from uh, President Aboeleta to for the transition, just to 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 hold both positions for the time being. I see, um, um, and so that's a, that's a temporary position. Well, now the, the interim, the president is is a temporary position for now. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, I was just thinking that 
navigating being CMO and um, and during this time president of the organization and chair of that is like you're wearing three hats. Uh, yes, and no, there is a lot of overlap. Uh, especially, you know, when I have to manage service lines and hire physicians, and there is uh, there is uh, there is quite a bit of overlap. Now, as to the chair of the of the of the board, then uh, you know I think it should be separate. You know, I, you know, as president should be reporting chair. So we are going to revisit the structure once the full board is up. And um, we, are, we are aiming to have the full board as as soon as possible. I mean, our bylaws uh, uh, was uh, anticipating this to happen by the June 30th, 2021, but we might need to amend the bylaws to have the full board up earlier than that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as soon as possible, we think about the compliment that our AHS board has been lacking one person, and we really want to make sure that Anytime there's an open position, it's just like a seat wasted and a voice wasted and a poor um, influence and in um, you know asset, uh, you know just left. Um, so yes, good to uh, good to see that those open positions are going to be filled in soon. Thank you. So, uh, Trustee Banerjee, uh, I totally agree with those points. And just to add some uh, context, so there. Um, uh, a number of those positions, as Dr. Jamaluddin was identifying for their board, uh, has to go. There's a prescribed um, process with the nominating committee having to vet those candidates. So they have that committee up, and then that process can ensue. Uh, the other um, uh, nuance that they always have to balance is because of the uh, uh, the requirement in, um, in the law around the uh, makeup of the board being 51% or at least a simple majority of uh, disinterested members. They can't fill the interested seats uh, uh, faster than the disinterested ones. They have to kind of go in, in concert so that they always are compliant with the law that the board has to be mostly people not employed by the organization. They move forward, and as Dr. Jamaluddin put, uh, I think everybody anticipated when the bylaws were put together that the transitional period would have a lot of things to do. As he's identified some of the uh, things they've already done, uh, people thought that it would take about a year to um, go through this process and seat the full board. And as he mentioned, uh, there is an interest, I think, on the part of the uh, the providers within EBMG and the board to to uh, accelerate that. So they're not waiting until July one of 2021. They could do it sooner. That's I have actually a question about the bylaws since you brought it up, um, Ghassan and, and Delvecchio both. Can you explain how the bylaws were developed and um, what was their board in place when the bylaws were being debated or brought forward? Or did it just, how, how did it get brought forward to? Sure. I, I can speak to it. Uh, yeah. So uh, so it is a wholly owned subsidiary of AHS, uh, and it started off as AHP. So AHP had a set of bylaws that have to, as a wholly owned subsidiary, uh, be um, approved by the parent organization. So just as like your bylaws have to be approved by the county, uh, AHP's bylaws had to be approved by the board. Um, when as a portion, as a process of the integration or as a component of the integration process, uh, there were discussions about uh, necessary or desirable changes to the existing bylaws of AHP as a uh, conduit for embracing and 
uh, transforming into EBMG. Uh, that discussion was uh, done through a set, um, it was a sort of joint group of some AHP uh, existing board members, some uh, Oak Care existing board members, a few trustees, and uh, myself. And, and those bylaws were re reviewed, certain things were uh, decided with respect to who had seats on the board, how many seats there were on the board, what a transitional board looked like, uh, and, and a couple of other the components that have been identified here, the nominating committee, a uh, host of other things. Those were then packaged, and because they needed to go through an existing vehicle, the, the package then came to the AHP board to be voted on and accepted, which happened, and then the AHP board had to bring them forward to the AHS board, your board, and they got approved there. You're on, you're on mute. Does that, I, I want to make sure I answered your questions. Trustee Benergy. No, that's fine. I just, I, I, just, I, don't, I guess I didn't recall um, how long ago. I recall the, the whole discussion of AHP some time ago and extensive review and um, discussion of the bylaws, but I wasn't um, recalling the, the discussion and debate or review of the revi revisions. Was it a was it a clip was, was it in, uh, just on consent then, or was there a discussion? No, 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 no. There was actually a whole presentation by yeah. the joint group that came before you to talk. Here was the bylaws, and, uh, and uh, I think there was one other document that was kind of cementing that and setting that forward, and uh, you all uh, uh, took that and uh, approved it. So. It, it was called the, the affiliation agreement, I think, Trustee Jensen, and I think it was in June 2019. Yeah, but it wasn't an anonymous vote. That is correct. That's correct. But it was a spirited debate. Yes. That too is correct. Gassan, thanks for that presentation. Looking forward, can you tell me kind of the vision for East Bay Medical Group vis-a-vis -vis other contracted groups which exist under the auspices of this organization? Um, for example, Traditions Behavioral Health and other contracting groups. So, uh, I mean, if we're talking about UCSF and traditional behavioral health, uh, I mean, we have uh, no immediate plan to go into those service lines. Uh, I, uh, I think uh, psychiatry, we have the UAPD physicians and the space of, the behavior, of traditional behavioral health is, is, uh, is well defined and we reach agreement right now between the, our UAPD physicians and the traditional behavioral health. Uh, so, uh, I mean, we can consider it. I want those decisions to come at the level of the board. Uh, in terms of those of those uh, strategy, but uh, we, with respect, like to uh, uh, like contracts that are individual contracts, uh, we like as much as possible to to integrate. And sometimes we are going to have contracts, so we're going to take it as case by case uh, basis. Like as you see, the chief of uh, of ophthalmology was a contracted physician who retired, so we hired with an East Bay Medical Group. Uh, our chief of ophthalmology. Uh, so that's that's my my immediate uh, really uh, answer to this plan uh, to this question. Uh, in 2016, we had about 180 uh, physician contract. Uh, so now we have um, l lower number. 
And uh, it's going to be really a decision that I like to bring to the to the board and discuss at the board in terms of our strategic direction. I mean, as you know, your service line now is all East Bay Medical Group, except for one contract, maybe right? One contract. And the the other thing I had to uh, Trustee Bouquet, uh, um, it's a it's a it, it falls under the the rubric of the. Um, the dynamic and the relationship between the AHS and the EBMT too. I mean, the the, the the underpinning of that relationship is that AHS is effectively contracting with EBMG to uh, provide uh, whatever the agreed upon set of clinical services under the auspice of the physicians and in some uh, limited context, advanced practice providers. And so uh, there's a dynamic that we're establishing. One of the things that wasn't mentioned there that is called for in that agreement, which is a, uh, a defined set of scopes of services which identify what we're actually procuring, how we do the dynamic of what we already have and how we calibrate that to meet the needs of the organization and balance it with you know, uh, non-EBMG non nursing and staffing, uh, but also looking at how do we calibrate that from a, either a strategic perspective in terms of service growth, contraction, uh, expense management, and a host of other considerations. So when we look at groups that we either contract with now or might in the future, some of the considerations are around those factors, the, the ability of EBMG to uh, stand up the service, the, to absorb uh, that sort of thing, what are the costs look like and other sorts of considerations. The overarching question is uh, to put, I'm sorry, the overarching just is to try to put a wholly owned group that actually uh, subsumes the, the bulk of what we can do. And as you know, our community docs who are uh, represented by UAPD uh, uh, by statute cannot go into EBMG. So, so we have some limitations, but others are more, more of a strategic uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can only say this as like past um, chair of audit where we did a whole bunch of like governance issues as well that having um, the same person be the president of the organization and the chair of the board as well is like very uh, uh, non, uh, you know, non-optimal, like really um, not a good governance practice over there, serious. So the, if this is a temporary position, like I hope that it's going to be like, there's a very active um, process to like, you know, dive, to distinguish those have a precedent in place and do that because like that, that's not good governance. Uh, uh, I appreciate it. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I appreciate it. Actually, by, by, uh, just for, for context, um, in medical groups, that actually is, an, is not an uncommon uh, uh, practice. Uh, and from an auditing perspective, uh, I have no knowledge that, 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 that there is actually uh, a conflict. Uh, and actually the bylaws, actually specifically say for this group, the bylaws you approve, my recollection is that uh, there is no prohibition on those individuals being one and the same. So um, so just to point that out, but I, I agree, I, I think, and I agree with Ghassan, uh, it is transitional and it's temporary. The overlap that he mentioned is, is more in the role of the uh, the president and the CMO, there's a significant amount of overlap there. And as we look at and think about as an organization, procuring services from this group and looking at costs for those things, um, that that type of overlap is actually uh, uh, potentially a source of uh, 
excess costs that then can actually be used other in other parts of the organization. So I think that's a longer conversation. The piece around the chair of the board, that was actually the board's decision, but I think that uh, the, the, I take the point and I actually agree with them. It's not my call, but I agree that, you know, uh, just in the interest of trying to um, uh, stand the, the, uh, the board up for more uh, maturity itself, that um, uh, having him as a chair probably isn't the, the right thing for the group. Any other question? Thank you, Kasan. Thank you. Next, we have a discussion on the budget. Kim and Delvecchio. Yes. Um, uh, trustees, uh, I'm actually going to, I'm just teeing this up for Kim. I, I mentioned earlier in my comments that we are uh, proceeding with our efforts to try to finalize the budget. Uh, as you uh, know, we provide an update to the finance committee. Usually it's in a summary uh, piece here and we uh, just give an update on the financials. Uh, but the finance committee, I think, specifically asked that Kim give the uh, this report so that you're not just hearing the full uh, uh, budget when you hear it next month. So. Uh, with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Kim uh, to, to walk you through. Okay, can you all see my presentation? Not yet. No? Hmm. No. I don't know why not. Maybe I'm not sharing. Let's see here. It said share. I don't know what's happening. I'm sharing. We can see it now. It may have been a delay. We can see it now, Kim. Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> it's like, what happened? Okay, so um, this is uh, on where we sit. Um, this is, I guess, round two, if you will. We originally um, were at a pretty much a break-even EBITDA of 1235000 uh, I've listed out the improvements to date here. Um, we uh, had a, a legacy system buyout for IT, so it'll save us money next year. We did have to put out some cash this year, but it's still a net savings. Uh, the, we did add the CARES Act, the $5 million. Um, We probably shouldn't have put that as an improvement because the CARES funding is going towards CARES expenses. And we did not try to budget out CARES expense, so we probably should not budget out um, CARES revenue. Um, we had a benefit adjustment, which was a pickup of $9 million. Uh, we put in some Visient labor optimization. The Visient will be here on site helping us to achieve that savings. Uh, there's another uh, COVID-related increase for SNF. Um, there's additional savings from the COLA increase and a true up on the HPAC contract for $2.5 million. So as of this update, we were at a 2.3% margin. Um, we're going to uh, obviously load the final budget next week. I can tell you we're coming in pretty much at this same level, but I've taken out the CARES um, funding. So we have come up with a, a little more improvement than this and pulled out the CARES. But as of this, um, this uh, process in the budget, we were up to a 24680. 
Um, so we drop that because that's EBITDA and EBITDA is supposed to convert to cash. So that's earnings before interest, appreciation, and amortization. Those are non-cash items. So that is a, a, should be our cash flow. So that's coming in here at the top in yellow. And then uh, we've got some timing differences on the balance sheet. We've got other assets and liabilities that are gonna turn over during the year. So I estimated that it would end up being a delay of some funding. Then I've got our capital outlay here. Nothing's changed since the last presentation where it's still at 63,251. We get some other offsetting. Again, that has not changed. County transactions have not changed. I did change the format to make this easier to read. So I've netted down where we will be before the recoupments. So if we pay none of the recoupments, we would be at the end of the year at 155.95, which is about 30 million six over our net negative balance. And again, that's assuming that we will pay or purchase all of the 43, 434 of new capital essential requests, um, as, uh, as you might guess. Uh, sometimes those payments might drag out beyond this uh, fiscal year. Uh, so that's that's where we're landing. We're just kind of staying right at the, the top of that NNB. And then if I put the recoupments in, uh, we far exceed the NNB. We're over um, 168.50. So... Um, I can go through a lot of these uh, opportunities. I don't know if we want to take the time tonight to do this. Um, there is risk. I do want to make sure that everybody recognizes that. We have built in reductions in OT, and we are making the assumption we're going to hit our labor targets. Those take um, leadership uh, all throughout our organization and uh, a discipline. The COLA savings are pending union negotiations, and uh, we don't know whether we'll achieve those, but we've got uh, 9.3 million uh, built mm -hmm. in to achieve. Um, we've got also payer rate increases. Uh, again, those contracts are yet to be negotiated, so we still need to achieve those targets in our ne negotiations with payers. Um, we've also got improvement in length to stay as one of our um, areas getting us to our final budget. And again, that's another area that takes, you know, a lot of discipline, a lot of work, um, constant measurement, um, and we've built it in and we've got commitment from the organization. And then, of course, the impact of continuing pandemic. Um, you know, right now we've just put the whole pandemic aside. Um, and we've done that because, you know, we, everybody's got a different crystal ball. Uh, I think no matter what we build in, it would be wrong. So at least uh, going with our uh, guiding principles with this budget process, we know where we think we would have been. We can measure against that. Uh, and the idea being that we'll have, find enough relief funding to pay the additional um, costs and loss of revenue from COVID. So our uh, current budget focus and next steps is, uh, you know, we're finalizing the budget actually this next week. We'll post next Friday. Um, we uh, still plan to bring it to you for final approval next month. And of course, you know, hopefully phase two is underway to uh, help us uh, focus on our financial reporting and um, where we make and lose money and how we do allocations 
so we can uh, support the stabilization of AHS. So I kind of ran through that quickly. Any questions? Kim, can you remind us where um, capital falls? Capital expenditures? Much so they're right here, the 43 million. So uh, I didn't, I guess I, in this presentation, we don't have the slides or the summary. Do you want me to pull it up? We, sh we had it in the last presentation last month. Yeah, if it's available, I just want to remind my colleagues of the importance of this. Yeah, I think I'm just pulling it up right now. So here's the example of what this includes. Can you all see that? Yeah. So uh, these are not everything. This is not an all-inclusive list, but these are the big items. Uh, if I gave you the whole list, it would be it would be huge. Um, the Park Ridge roof is obviously a, a big expense. Uh, the cable and HVAC. Um, the nurse call system at Park Ridge, the cooling tower at Alameda, those are all essential facility things. IT, we've got so many things at end of life. Um, it's, it's amazing we're on window seven. Right. Um, and uh, Kronos, you know, timekeeping, there's a, there's a whole host of things that go out more than one year. This is just FY21 including some improvements to our uh, county infrastructure. And then there's also some equipment needs there at San Leandro and the sterilizers came up in the survey. So we definitely need to address um, the sterilizers. So is there any, none of these feel like wish list items. They feel more like need items, need list items or something. Yeah. <laughs> Our leadership team ranked all of these, all 43 million, as level one must do essential for operations. Right. I, I think it uh, when we have our meeting on a net negotiated uh, rate, I think uh, we might want to put a little bit more detail to this, or at least some some more detail about why why we need it. Because I think it was one of the one of the questions that came up in several. Uh, mine and Lewis's meetings, they just didn't have a, with the Board of Supervisors, they just didn't have a good grasp of uh, what our needs were. Yeah, I think that's an excellent idea. Okay. And so 24 million is is uh, available on the, uh, towards the net negative balance from EBITDA. Um, but that's a drop in a bucket when you look at the uh, bottom line, which is a shortage of 168 million. Yes, so back to this slide, there's our 24 of EBITDA coming forward. 
We do have some timing differences on our balance sheet. Um, here's the capital, uh, $63 million when you add on the EPIC payments we need to make and the payments that we have yet to make on the Alameda Hospital Seismic and everything else is about $6 million that's still in play to pay. And then I've done the offset of $4 million from the county, so we're assuming that we'll get those the transfers back from them to help fund us next year. And that's uh, a shortfall, basically, of $65 million. Uh, if you just look at cash for next year. So that adds on to the net negative value balance of June here of the 85,589. Um, keep in mind that we, the reason why this is so much lower is because we got money early. And so it moved into this year um, and out of next year. So that made this look, oh, you know, much lower than it would have been. Yeah. So that's this chart is really crucial for us to. That's where our focus needs to be. I'd say on the operating budget, the the budget and process. I think the thing to look at is um, the operation operating margin. You know, as we do a dual focus on EBITDA and operating margin, we see the problem. Yeah. Here we got a two point. So remember, about every point's a hundred million. I'm sorry. $10 million. $10 million. Yeah. So this is about a $25 million shortfall from from uh, even yeah. from an operating margin perspective. Very easy way to understand this. Yeah. Good. Yeah, and we can show our uh, net income in our financials here, and then this is how you get to evidence. So we just add back the cash, yeah. non-cash items. Yeah. Just, just it's, it's on our financials so you can see it but we'll start benchmarking it yeah see and, and if looking at looking at that schedule where theoretically we were at a zero operating margin right zero we operating were, margin in this is uh 2.5 negative yeah. uh, in the last presentation so that would add and theoretically add another 25 30 million and then when you figure out what our capital needs of stuff are, you know, that that's part of the reason we've got a problem. Yeah, it's interesting. Take the recruitments out. Yeah, is there any update on the recruitments or the timing? I think we had heard some rumblings perhaps through the county that, that they're that they might be delayed or or something of that nature. Do we know anything about the timeline? Is it definitely happening in this year? Yeah, so we uh, uh, initiated a call with the Department of Health um, um, Services with the state, uh, a, a person by the name of Angie Smith. She, uh, Shu Lin Lin uh, works in our reimbursement. She's our reimbursement director. She's got relationships with these folks at the state. So we set up a meeting with them um, uh, just to see if we could get some information or, and let them know about our cash situation. And we invited Rebecca Gephardt from the county to that meeting. So she was on the call with us. And what we were told is that the state has requested an extension from CMS to December 31st of 2021 to finalize all of these old waivers. That's through 2009 to 2015. And they believe they'll get it because of COVID and that there's these outstanding audits and it's impossible for them to do an ad adequate job reconciling if they still have 
audits out on the P14s. So they believe that they will get it and that will extend the deadline a year. Um, I did notice in a, something that came through my email today that they actually have public comment on this extension, which surprised me from uh, Health and Human Services. So uh, I, don't, I, I, yeah, I, don't, I haven't been around long enough to know whether they'll, uh, they'll grant that extension or not. Um, but um, we asked about payment plans and any forgiveness of debt or anything else that might, you know, help us because we reiterated the hardship and uh, she was very compassionate. She said, we're not alone. We're not the only hospital system in this situation. Uh, she did say that if they did do some kind of um, payment plan, they'd still want it paid within the, the this period of time, meaning before December of next year. Uh, I tried to push a little harder on planning and she said, let's have a conversation once we know what the actual amounts are when um, the settlements are done and the audits are, you know, the audits are completed and the settlements are done. Kim, this is Taft. Thanks for that report. Um, uh, for this question, Tony Redmond might want to be a part of this. Uh, I just want to re repeat what I thought I heard the other night. Can we talk about uh, the projections for the potential, a potential strike? What the, what the costing is on that one more time? What, what our projections are? So, so um, I, I saw Tony uh, was on background. I don't know if he's actually in, but I don't know that we have uh, projections on it. I do seem to recall that he may have had uh, some, uh, presented some number of what- Yeah, I, heard, I thought I heard a number and I just wanted, I was really tired that night. Uh, and I just want to make sure what that number is projected to be should a strike of all the SEIU 1021 happen. It's related to replacement workers and so forth. R right. I, I, trustees, uh, yeah, obviously you guys are all in the room. The amount and yeah, it was, yeah. I don't remember what And then I remember there was a discussion about- the, I had the amount in my head, but I think it'd be better from Tony. <laughs> and Lewis, that's where I'm going. I have an amount in my head. I just want it fact checked. Yeah, we can, we can get that for you. So while we're waiting for Tony, uh, Kim, can you going back to the uh, cash flow projection? So if it if we did get a delay um, that took us out of this fiscal year, which waivers? I'm sorry, which recoupments would that impact? Is it all three there? Old waivers all the way down to F. F no, it's, it's the 67 million. Got it. Yeah. So the others would still happen. Seventy million would happen. Yeah, there, there are some more cost settlements for thirty million. Um, I I got the sense that they might be willing to do something with those as well, um, but we really focused our conversation on the sixty-seven million on the old waivers. Yeah. Okay. So that's big news. It, well, it's it's big news to the effect of it can happen. It could happen. We haven't, I think, uh, at this point, we don't know. We uh, haven't gotten a guarantee, uh, uh, but it could happen. Uh, and as you know, from a perspective of our, that, that she kind of mirrors kind of what uh, net negative balance would look like, that those expenses are not on our uh, budget. So the, the, any sort of savings or delay or any of that, while it's great, collectively for us as a yeah, they're not a, we don't have a reserve for 
Right. We don't have a reserve and we haven't we haven't put that in our expenses so that if we get it, it doesn't it doesn't uh, improve our financial projections for the year from the organization's perspective. And it's also just kicking it down the road a bit, right? That's right. Yeah, not, I, not that far down the road either. Not that far down the road either. There's no way we could generate that kind of cash flow in 12. I mean, we, we, we have to live in the real world is a way to say it, right? We can't yes. just, we cannot, you know, someone says, oh, we might be able to. No, no, we're, we're, we have to have uh, a firm plan for our finances. It's called a budget going forward. And, and we have to assume realistic numbers until we yes. get the insurance that we have and saved from that right. during the period. Uh, it looks like, Tony, are you on? I see I see your icon there. He may have stepped away. I, I text him. I'm sorry. Uh, All right. Yeah. Well, why are you back? Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, he's back. Looks like he's back. Adela, you had a question? Uh, Trustee uh, Bouquet asked a question. Uh, uh, Tony, the other night we had discussion, I just... Thought I heard a number, but then I didn't rem remember if I remembered only. What would what is the projected cost of of uh, a strike? And I remember there was a discussion. You informed us nicely yeah. that if, if we were to get um, fill in workers, they don't you can't contract them for one day. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously it varies based on the services that we maintain open, but you could be looking at anything around the ten million dollar mark. Uh, I think much of it, obviously, that's a an estimate, and it's going to depend on what services you maintain, uh, what, what's closed down, and what replacement workers we're able to identify. The market is tight now because of COVID-19, and so you're going to have to pay an additional premium to secure those workers in the marketplace. Uh, and then you've got to determine exactly which of those services we will maintain, whether or not uh, we would do something with ambulatory. We've had discussions about that already today around ambulatory, the SNF services, particularly risky is John George and securing uh, workers for obviously an acute rehab with the only one in the county. And so there's obviously a limited supply of people who have psychiatric experience. And so the, there's variability there, but $10 million is not, I, I don't think, uh, far off the mark, but obviously that's going to vary depending upon what services we maintain. And that would be, Tony, for for about a week? Correct. Okay, got it. Obviously, and then, but, uh, not to mislead you, uh, Trustee Bouquet, the other trustees, obviously there's an offset in that you don't pay existing employees. Of course. Um, who are not working during that time, but it, it's an expensive proposition to replace existing an existing workforce with a temporary workforce. Thanks, Thanks Tony. Uh, and then term. the only other thing I had to caution is is uh, there there could be a revenue impact as well if there is a volume uh, implication. So it, it really does depend on what the mitigation plan ends up becoming. So uh, I think it's healthy, and I, I certainly can understand the need uh, from a governance perspective to have a kind of a, a, a grounding of some type of number. So so this is as good as or as good as any. But please, uh, understood. Yeah, hold this is to it or us do because. It'll depend on what the plan ends up becoming. So thank you. To go down. Fully understood, fuzzy math, but to put it in uh, 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 my new knowledge, as per my finance chair, we're talking roughly uh, around a point of EBITDA. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Uh, and we're underwater. So. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just as we're in a situation where we're starting to see ER volumes return and starting to re yeah, try to no, resume services, this is sort of the last thing um, 
we'd want from the perspective of um, the, a community that's already worried about coming to get uh, care. And so just adding one other thing um, to the heat pile. Uh, Tony, do we, do we still have a significant number of people out on leave? Uh, we do. We have around 300. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I can absolutely get that. It's varied up and down, anywhere down from the low 200s up to 300 uh, people out at any one time on a leave. Uh, most of them are driven by um, school closures uh -huh. uh, and taking care of children. There aren't a lot of employees who've been actually exposed to COVID-19. We've had an incredibly low exposure rate, certainly in the workplace. Uh, it's negligible, although about 1.4% of employees have tested positive. Um, we haven't traced any of those back to an exposure in the workplace. They've generally been community acquired. Um, and so, you know, the vast majority are based on school closures and the ability to care for children or find alternative care for children. And that's upwards of probably a $10 million cost uh, in a benefit this year that we didn't project obviously because no one's aware COVID was going to occur and that, that was an unexpected expense that's running from last fiscal year into this one. And do we do we have that kind of built into our expenditure uh, projections going into the No, I, I don't believe that we do. Um, I think oh. it's an ongoing cost of leaves. Um, it, it's unpredictable. The, the, the act itself that we, we're not subjected to the act, but we have implemented the provisions of, of the act uh, expire in December, and we would expect the leaves to expire with that. Obviously, we don't know what the future holds, and so we're, we're going to have to assess that as we move forward. Uh, but the um, Families First for Coronavirus Act expires December 31st, and so the leave provisions would expire in line with that. Uh, but again, we we are uh, incurring significant costs with that in terms of replacement replacing employees who are out on leave. Thank you. Well, I know this isn't the topic that we're discussing, but since you mentioned the the COVID rate among uh, hospital staff, I mean, I just want to applaud everyone. I mean, I just feel like it really speaks to. Um, that you know PPE and all of the uh, the hard work of EBS and you know doing all the sterilization and all the techniques that are done within the hospital are are working um, and so that is really tremendous. I'm at least proud to say that we've been able to protect our staff in that way and not have to mitigate outbreaks within our setting. So that's 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 at least some good news. Publicly, thank you. You're here. Okay. All right. Other questions on finance and all of its related <laughs> topics. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So doing a time check here, we've got a couple of more items on the open session and then we've got a closed session. So we've got the uh, report on law enforcement in our facilities and that is Luis. Yes, thank you, Trustee uh, Abuela. I've got about a 45 minute presentation. Awesome. <laughs> Rescheduled. <laughs> okay, we owe you one. 
<laughs> we will certainly go through this uh, relatively quickly, but we wanted to make sure that we, we uh, circled back uh, a couple of months ago in one of our board meetings uh, in light of the, the very unfortunate events that have happened in, in just various parts of the country related to law enforcement. Uh, there were some questions from our trustees uh, that, uh, you know, we have a presence in our, in our campus here, uh, specifically at Highland. Uh, with the Alameda County Sheriff's Department. And so we wanted to go ahead and, and circle back and share with you uh, some, some highlights of how we manage the program, how we track the program, and uh, you know, what our experience is here uh, within, uh, you know, within our, our facility, our campus, and our partnership with uh, Alameda County Sheriff. So uh, our Director of Security, who is on the call here to join us and will walk us through this quickly, his name is Amal Amini. Uh, he is uh, Director of Security Services and Parking Services for our, uh, for our health system. He's been on board for a couple of months and he's already hit the ground running and has done a tremendous amount of work working closely with uh, our Sheriff's Department as well as our security, uh, contract security workforce to, to put something together to share some information. So with that, uh, Iman. Thank you, Louise, and uh, good evening, everyone, and thank you for having me on uh, the call tonight. Uh, can we uh, present the slide, please? Can you see the slides, uh, Imam? I cannot. We can't see them. Are you sharing? It's uh, maybe a bit of a delay. Uh, it's it's this thing. I want to do it again. All right. How about now? It's coming up. There right. it is. Yep. Great. Thank you. Uh, we'll start by reviewing the scope and staffing of the Alameda County Sheriff's Office at the Highland Campus. We'll refer to them as ACSO in this presentation moving forward. I'll meet us. Okay, this should be better. Is this better now? Yes. Sorry about that. I'll meet health system is contracted with the ACSO to provide law enforcement services for the protection of employees, patients, visitors, and the Highland campus which includes all of our buildings in the surrounding area. They also collaborate closely with the Oakland Police Department and prevent something happens in the neighboring streets, although they remain vigilant and available to provide support. From a staffing perspective, the sheriff's deputies provide law enforcement services 24 hours a day and seven days a week, with a minimum of two deputies always on duty. A total of 10 deputies and one sergeant are assigned to Highland, with the sergeant acting as the ACSO manager and liaison to HS leadership. Next slide, please. So we understand their staffing and what their scope is. Within that, we have some specific objectives. The ACSO's primary objective is safety and security, secure the environment and protect staff, patients, and visitors from harm. Their secondary objective is to protect Highland campus property and support adherence of AHS policies such as smoking and, and parking policies. Each encounter is approached with a customer service mindset meaning the ACSO seeks direction from us, the customer, as to how we would like for them to provide us support. They provide us information on their encounters with staff and patients, and we are very critical of their services as they are as well. Next slide, please. We know what their scope is, what their staffing and structure look like. Within that, they have some specific objectives. Those objectives then translate to these certain priorities. In addition to ensuring the safety and protection of our staff and patients, the ACSO provides an immediate response to requests for law enforcement services, such as code gray and code 10 calls of distress. 
it is their priority to leverage their training and experience to de-escalate uncertain circumstances. One of their top priorities is to only make contact when cause exists. This means outside of patrolling the campus, they only make contact and obtain an individual's information when a staff member reports a suspicious person or suspicious activity. Unless they've been called to intervene, they do not randomly or selectively obtain information to run background checks. The ACSO is able to meet these priorities given they have the legal standing to enforce the law. Next slide, please. This legal authority also includes the ability to use force if and when it's needed. So how is use of force defined? According to ACSO policy, when an individual resists, any physical contact to control or escort that individual is defined as use of force. An example of resisting is planting one's feet so they cannot be moved. When time and circumstances permit, there are over 16 factors a deputy must consider when determining whether to use force. A few of those, these factors include posing an imminent threat, displaying symptoms of being under influence, and attempting to escape or fight back. Ultimately, it is the individual's actions and behaviors which determine whether forces used, and those behaviors are also classified as compliant, which is non-resistant, passive non-compliant, one who does not respond to verbal commands but offers minimal resistance, actively res resistant, being physically evasive, and we have assaultive and life-threatening as well. The type of force most commonly used is a firm grip or use of an escort position. This is a distinction we need to understand clearly. Anytime a person resists, pulling an arm away, refusing to move, if the deputy places a hand on the individual to guide them, this would be considered use of force. I want you to imagine a hand on the back like a maitre d' would at a restaurant. If the individual any shape or form resists that guidance, it would be classified as use of force. Next slide, please. So we understand how use of force is defined, but in which situations would use of force be initiated? Certain circumstances provide the conditions where use of force is unavoidable. Those conditions typically stem from staff members requesting assistance by activating an emergency code. The ACSO responds to the call to assist staff with combative persons or to secure an unsafe environment. The most frequent calls for support are emergency code gray, emergency code 10, and requests for assistance with combative psychiatric patients. A code 10 is called when a patient arrives to a campus with visible penetration wounds, such as a stab or gunshot wound. Medical care cannot be provided until scene safety is secured by the ACSO. A code gray is called when an individual is combative, aggressive towards others, and refusing to follow orders. Next slide, please. Putting this in perspective, when a staff member activates a code gray, we are communicating to our deputies, a staff member's safety is being threatened, that there's a criminal element involved. An individual is combative, aggressive, and intimidating staff. We have effectively criminalized the situation. In, addis in addition to the emergency code calls, the ACSO are often called to assist medical staff with transferring or restraining combative psychiatric patients. These patients are combative and showing signs of aggression towards uh, our staff members. Next slide, please. So how often does use of force occur at Highland? 
When an individual is non-resistant, firm grips, control holds, and grappling may be used. When an individual displays assaultive or life-threatening behaviors, then other force may be used. Other force consists of strikes from an agency-approved weapon, tasers, or chemical agents. Looking at the data on the slide, the navy bars represent the use of firm grips and control holds. The light blue bars represent other force being used. What this data tells us is the deputies exercise great caution and only use other force as a last resort. Let's look at the distribution of cases and frequency in which use of force is utilized in the next slide. This graph shows us the frequency in which code grays and code tans are called on an annual basis. These are cases where the ACSO has responded to emergency code activation calls and they provide support to our staff members. The gray bars are code gray cases, the tan bars are code tan cases. In relation to those code grays and code tans, we see black bars illustrating the occurrences of the ACSO using force. Real quickly, looking at 2019, we had 436 code gray calls and 171 code tan calls where the ACSO arrived to provide support. Of the combined 607 cases, use of force was only initiated three times. This equates to 0.004% and tells us the story of how often the ACSO is responding to calls and how often they're de-escalating situations using their training to communicate rather than use force. The trend that you see in 2020 with the data going down, we believe this is due to COVID-19 and our limited to no visitor, visitor policy at the hospital. Next slide, please. Similar to the previous slide, this graph illustrates the frequency in which the ACSO has been contacted to provide assistance with transferring or restraining combative psychiatric patients. These do not include the code grades we reviewed on the previous graph. The green bars illustrate the number of times the ACSO has responded to a request. The blue bars indicate the ACSO using force and the black colored bars illustrate the frequency in which other force was used. Looking at 2019, we had 2,440 cases, 19 cases where the deputies had to use a firm grip or control hold and only three times when they had to use other force. Next slide, please. We reviewed the number of cases where the ACSO responded to distress calls with psychiatric patients and code gray activations. Now we'll look and take a closer look at code tans that are very significant. And why are they significant? Because code tans are typically called when they're when a patient presents with physical uh, penetration wounds such as gunshot or uh, stab wounds. This is relevant as more gunshot wound victims present to ED entrances then arrive via ambulance. If the gunshot wound was caused by a conflict with a rival, there's a risk of the rival group arriving to the same hospital for treatment. This creates a potential for violence and retaliation to occur at the hospital. The blue line represents the Highland campus. The purple line illustrates Zuckerberg, San Francisco General Hospital, and the green line is Kaiser Oakland. We're averaging two to three times more GSW gunshot wound victims than our peers, peers in uh, our respective area. Next slide, please. Here we're just going to we're looking at some data, which are cases that do not involve emergency code activation. Uh, the one point I want to uh, want you to take a look at is the disturbing the peace cases. These are different from code grays. In disturbing the peace, the element of threat to safety and well-being does not exist. There are generally individuals screaming, refusing to leave, or playing loud music. Next slide, please. This data that we're looking at now, uh, the, there's two points that I want to make on this specific slide. 
one of them is suspicious behavior. How is suspicious behavior defined? It's a person acting out of the ordinary, looking into windows, checking car doors or office doors to see if they're unlocked, screaming, acting bizarre, or any disruptive behavior. Suspicious persons are often co contacted by deputies upon receipt of a report from a staff member or while patrolling the campus. The second element I want to focus on on this specific slide is the parole and probation searches. These parole and probation searches originate from staff members activating code gray, code tan, or reporting a suspicious person. The ACSO makes contact with the individual and obtains their information, provides it to their dispatch, and it is dispatch which determines when a search can be conducted. As certain parole or probation classifications come with a search stipulation, spontaneous searches of or for possible parolees do not occur. Contact is only made with cause, and it is individual's behavior, which is the catalyst for a staff member to report them. Next slide. Here we're just looking at some citation data. If you go to the next slide. We've reviewed several slides worth of quantitative data, but there's also an impact the ACSO has, which is qualitative in nature, and thankfully cannot be measured. In March 2019, an individual implied a threat to bomb AHS hospitals on social media, specifically stating, now I got three hospitals to target for aerial incendiary bombing. Upon notification, AHS leadership contacted the ACSO sergeant assigned to the Highland campus who took immediate action by placing Highland campus deputies on high alert, contacting the FBI and the local police departments where AHS campuses are located, providing notification to the Regional Intelligence Center and FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force utilizing ACSO resources to identify, locate, and initiate contact with the individual to avoid a catastrophe. Next slide. As an urban trauma center, the Highland Campus has unique challenges. The propensity for violence requires AHS leadership to secure the safety of patients, visitors, and staff members. The presence of ACSO deputies on campus provides a proactive and reactive force deterring criminal activity. Thank you. Thank you, Emil. Uh, one of the things, I mean, again, there was a lot of information. You all had to pack uh, had this information in your packet. Uh, I mean, we'll certainly uh, answer any questions you may have. One of the things that I will share just as a, as a, as in reviewing the data and as, as an observation, uh, we have some opportunities and uh, Amal is looking at ways in which we could uh, better provide support to our staff, train our staff, uh, because the data reflects that we have a tendency to, uh, you know, to resort to the Alameda County Sheriff's uh, Department before we uh, take other types of interventions or any type of activity within uh, uh, the campus itself. And so uh, there's some work that needs to be done in that space. And, and, and that's really a, a matter of you know, providing some additional training or continuing to work with our staff on site. When you see that uh, we have an extremely high number of 5150s uh, in which ACSO is involved with, uh, there, there's obviously some opportunities for us to you know, further train our clinicians and and uh, some of our rapid response teams to make sure that we're uh, we're caring for that patient population in a very different way. Uh, you know, an example of that is at John George. Uh, we don't we don't call the sheriff's department to come and assist with you know patients that may be 
uh, unruly or that are on a 5150 that are endangering themselves or others. And so uh, how can we bring some of that training over to this facility to make sure that all of our staff uh, feels comfortable and appropriately handles those types of situations. So again, there's some some learnings that we have as a result of reviewing and capturing all of this data and how we can really react and respond differently to, uh, to some of these cases. Uh, but with that, I'm happy to take any questions on myself or Amal. Um, Luis, I have a question. Um, is the Sheriff Department involved at Zuckerberg and at Oakland uh, Kaiser? They're, they're not involved at Oakland Kaiser uh, and then at, uh, at, at Zuckerberg, uh, as you know, they have, you know, you have the county city, uh, you know, they're, they're all one big family. And so they're, they're certainly involved in that campus. Okay. But they're, they're also at Laguna Honda in San Francisco as well. Yeah, okay. he's an SF Sheriff's Department, obviously. Yeah. You know, I, I just have to say, I've, I've never seen this data before. Um, it's unsettling uh, on many levels. Um, I'm just concerned. Um, it, you know, again, just I don't doubt the professionalism of um, our colleague who came to present this today. I'm, I'm just concerned that uh, the volume of interactions uh, is is high and and you know, how is our hospital different from those others? Um, and what, you know, especially Oakland, Kaiser Oakland. Um, anyway, I, I need to think about this. What what are our options? I guess, let me ask that. What are we considering? As it can, can I get clarification or... on the, I, I just want to make sure that Trustee Hernandez, uh, that we're seeing or, or seeing the same thing. The you the one that showed that we were high wasn't that about gunshot gunshots in the that were coming to us not the the one that compared us to the other hospitals or was that about that was, was drop offs gunshot right. drop offs so not and I don't know if we should show that again but so that was not about the number of contacts the comparison with the other hospitals yeah no I I, I get okay. it okay I just want to see how many times they are called yeah exactly. <laughs> I'm just looking at that, you know, the number of times they're called and do we have any comparative data for others? Yeah, that'd be interesting to see that. Yeah, I, yeah I, I, you know, I think uh, in speaking about this, I think we're all data nerds of some point. So I am all, I appreciate at least the first presentation of the data. This is, I, I, this is very illuminating. It and, and good data begets further questions. My a question for a subsequent presentation would be, what about use of force by race and, mm -hmm. and, and and the like, which would be very, very, very interesting in a subsequent presentation. And then my, my question to Luis, um, Luis, roughly how much do, and uh, sorry if you don't have it, I know it's a off the top question. How much are we spending on security per year? Uh, the uh, the kind of kit and caboodle that uh, with, with Sheriff and, and all that, all, all the, what does security cost us per year amongst our three campuses? Uh, and again, just a ballpark figure for security services, but you're probably looking at around uh, about $10 million. Per year, for per all year. three. And that includes the ASCO contract, which was $11 million for three years, I think. Uh, yeah, the ASCO contract was uh, about $3.5 per year. And, and then uh, 
And then uh, the rest of it would be our unarmed security force, which is L8 Universal at this point, which is across the entire system. Okay. So I uh, thank you for this report. I, I'm the yeah, uh, trustee you. who triggered this. And um, it is very illuminating. It does suggest um, just on the surface how challenging um, of an environment that our employees are working in. And we have to honor that fact, right, uh, and, and make sure we're creating safety for staff and patients and that, that's, that's a real challenge. I do wonder if um, sort of a bigger question for me is how we're, you know, if I go to, I, my wife works at Kaiser. We have Kaiser insurance. Um, I immediately get something in the mail after I've visited my doctor asking me a series of questions, including if, if memory recalls correctly that, questions about the experience in the building. And so I'm wondering, first, do we do that with our patients? Are we surveying? Uh, I think I've heard we, yeah, okay. And is it possible to add uh, a question or two related to their experience around um, safety and and uh, the, the law enforcement that we have here? We could certainly do that. Uh, I mean, I'd have to work with... Uh with uh, Dr. Hussein as it relates to our, our patient surveys that, uh, that uh, you know, are mailed out to our patients directly. And, uh, you know, there is some flexibility as far as custom questions that can be added to those surveys. Uh, but we can certainly look into that and, and certainly report back. Because what's missing for me is what's the experience of the consumer of our services? This, you know, and it's, there are people involved in these incidents but there's also a lot of other people just experiencing an environment where you have law enforcement. And I think, you know, you might, might provide some good information. And I would say that along with our patients and those that are visiting our facilities for services, I mean, equally our staff is probably the biggest customer. Yeah, yeah I was gonna mention the same thing. If we can add that to our staff surveys, um, a question around that as well, um, because I'm sure that that creates reassurance. Um, and I think for a lot of people that come to the hospital as well, that that can create reassurance. Um, I think the biggest concern for me on the presentation was the parole and probation matter. And the notion that you could be violated when you come to the hospital, um, you know, on your probation and parole. We know that when people are released from incarceration, that time post post release, that couple of weeks post release, um, the mortality rates are something like 17 times higher than any other time period. So, and people are lost to care. People run out of medications. People people receive care when they're incarcerated, and then they come out oftentimes without, you know, their blood pressure medication or whatever the case might be. So the notion that you could then show up to the safety net for services and be violated, and I get that there would be a reason. It sounded like there had to be a reason, but they're running their information to see if they're on supervision and then potentially they would become reincarcerated at that point from our facility. And that for me raises a big concern. Um, and so I like what you said, Luis, about the training issue so that perhaps this these situations can be de-escalated before it got to that point um but i just uh, you know that for me i wonder um 
I mean, it seems to me that you would need to be getting to the point where you're going to arrest a person, and then that's when you check. But it di didn't sound like that from the presentation, unless I misunderstood. You know, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. I, what I would say, uh, Trustee Abolera, is, is so to your first point, absolutely, and that's some of the work that we have to do internally. I, I think this is a, there's an opportunity to you know to uh, uh, further educate our staff and and to change the culture and change the current behaviors that are the immediate uh, response for any type of issue uh, is called the sheriff's department. And uh, you know, recognizing that we only have the sheriff's department here at Highland. Uh, we don't have that service at Alameda, San Leandro, or any of our other areas. And so, um, you know, how do we handle things in those facilities? And we obviously are able to de-escalate those in a way that, uh, you know, helps minimize any type of risk to anyone involved. And so how do we, how do we create that type of environment here, which would minimize uh, those interactions? Uh, you know, the sheriff's is, is just rounding our facility, patrolling and looking at areas, just making sure that we have a safe and secure environment. Uh, they don't engage unless they are asked to engage or unless they see something that obviously is, is uh, you know, warrants their type of engagement. But, uh, uh, you know, but that, that's, I think that's the first step to continue to do that. Uh, as it relates to, you know, the, the search, uh, you know, I've had extensive discussions with the uh, ACSO leadership and uh, AMOL as well, uh, which by the way, I wanna make sure that everyone understands and it's clear that AMOL is our employee. He's an AHS employee. He is the director of security services. He is uh, accountable and responsible for managing this contract and ensuring that they, uh, you know, uh, certainly are, are, are acting, you know, in, in accordance with our guidelines and policies and procedures here. But, uh, you know, the ACSO and those discussions, they, you know, they, they are, they are mandated by their own protocols that uh, it's not when they're looking at, you know, arresting someone that they would go ahead and perform the background check. It's for their own personal safety and anything else in, or anyone else in the vicinity or anyone involved that they, they have to, uh, if, if they're engaged and they are going to engage with a particular uh, person, they will, they will go ahead and perform that search. And so, um, you know, we've gone back and forth on that quite a bit, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're very, uh, you know, adamant about the fact that, you know, if they're going to engage for their safety, they're going to make sure that they know who they're working with. I think it's important at a bare minimum that the staff understand that. Um, and I, I can only guess what a gender and race uh, evaluation of that would look like. Um, but I think, you know, that would be something we may want to consider doing as well. Um, but I think that staff, because staff may or may not understand that, that someone could actually be violated because they're being called and maybe in a situation that five more extra minutes of trying to calm the situation down um, could have prevented somebody from being reincarcerated, you know, and we know that people are stressed out when they come to the ER, they wait, you know, all kinds of things go on. Um, and so, you know, I just, and I think we do a very good job. I mean, in general, in terms of obviously caring for people, however they, however they show up. Um, but this strikes me as, um, you know, a, a big concern. Well, the 5150 numbers are that's surprising to me how big these numbers are and that so uh, Luis I really appreciate you focusing uh, on that space um, as well because you know this county has more 5150s than any county in the state of California per capita and we shouldn't be party to that we should make sure that we're de-escalating because I can tell you who's who these people are too these are people of color that's who that is. That's who's getting caught up in that. 
So we need to figure out how to, you know, let, let's let's figure out how to de-escalate and and without law enforcement involved and without a commitment. I'm not saying that you're going to bring all these numbers completely down, but you, you know, if we could shave ten percent off. Yeah. So I also would ask if we're doing any kind of training around nonviolent communication, uh, de-escalation communication. Um, a long time ago, I recall Bart, um, I was working on a project and I was really stunned that uh, they have tr- they had at some point tremendous injury to the people who work inside the little uh, glass, uh, you know, uh, cubicles there by the gates. They got beat up, they uh, were assaulted. And they went through an enormous effort to do de-escalation training, nonviolent communication training to manage that. Um, and close to it was unconscious bias because um, the minute you know you see an angry person add a color of your choice as long as it's brown, and that becomes something different than for a person that's not. And um, we... Need to, we need to be prepared to look at the numbers and ask ourselves if that's another kind of training that we need to invest in. Absolutely. And, and I just want to be, be very clear that we do provide that training. Uh, you know, it's called team training. It used to be called CPI and MAB, which is crisis okay. prevention intervention and management of assaultive behavior. Uh, those were those, those are trainings that we currently provide. We do that at all for all staff at John George go through that training. We have all of our staff here in the ICU, ED, uh, labor and delivery. Uh, we, we have all of our staff. You know, most of our staff go through that training. Uh, that's one of the things that we're looking at. How can we continue to expand that out into our clinics, into some of our other environments? Uh, so absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we're doing is uh, you know, AML is working very closely with his counterparts out at San Francisco General. Uh, because they too are looking at this very closely and seeing how the staff can take a slightly different approach to de-escalate the situations before they're engaging any type of law enforcement. And so, this is a key focus area. You know, my, you know, our goal today, and you know, with this presentation, was to share with you the data. This is what it looks like. We've learned from this data as well as we've, you know, reviewed it closely. And and there's a lot of activity that, uh, you know, we will be leading to make sure that we can continue to drive change to improve uh, the environment while maintaining the safety and security of all of our staff and everyone that visits our campus. Thank you very much for doing this, Luis and ML. Thank you. Yeah, thank you both. This is really helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Luis. Thank you. All right, so we are at 10 o'clock, November retreat agenda. I am going to suggest that we take this up in our executive committee meeting, if that sounds all right with the other trustees. I think we already had come up with one topic that we liked um, in terms of something around equity for sure, might be around equity indicators that we want to look at for HR, maybe the ones that don't make it to the dashboard. We won't hold up the, we won't hold up the True North metrics dashboard, but um, so anyway, we can, we can take this up, uh, in executive committee and then, um, and then report back. So that the rest of our reports are written. So that takes us now to closed session. Mike, would you be able to announce the purpose of closed session? Uh, yes. Yeah, so the, uh, closed session, there are 
two items related to, excuse me, uh, litigation, one pending litigation, one anticipated litigation, a report on labor relations matters or a consultation with labor relations uh, council, and then a, uh, another performance evaluation session.